you're listening to a Two Jackets podcast. Check out more at twojackets.com. Hey, Sham listeners, it's your favorite co-host, Andrew, here to introduce Just the Fix, Shamthology Volume 3. This time is the third time. I'm so glad I just did that. But wait, you might be thinking out there, this time is the third time of what, Andrew? Well, every few months, or as some people would say, quarterly, we take just the fix from the most recent episodes and compile them together into an anthology, oh, um, excuse me, shamthology special. And that's what this is. No pitching, no discussing, just storytelling. But do not fret, dear sham listeners, your regularly scheduled programming with all the pitching and discussing will resume this Sunday with our latest episode. For now, enjoy the next, like, three hours of Just the Fix. Yeah. From episode 25, Eric writes The Hundred, based on the series created by Jason Rothenberg, adapted from the book by Cass Morgan. Two reds, one green, five blues, another green. Pause. Repeat. A clear pattern. Is it a message? She asked herself. Clark watched the blinking lights through several cycles, following along by scratching hashes in the dirt with her finger to keep track. She had been alone inside the tent, reading on her vid, when she noticed the colorful flashes coming from her wrist, which was something it had never done before. It gave her a sinking feeling in her gut. Is everything okay on the Ark? She stood awkwardly, keeping an eye on her wrist as she used the makeshift crutch to pull herself to her feet. The grounder attack, now several days in the past, had left her shaken and scared in a way that she had never known before. They had nothing in the way of medical supplies down here on the rock, and the possibility of infection had consumed her mind. The dirty cloth she was using as a bandage to cover the sore on her leg didn't give her any confidence either. She pushed open the piece of thatch that served as the door to her lean-to, and hobbled through. Immediately, a dozen eyes were on her. Lorden and Jamaica, who were cooking something over a fire nearby, both gave her weak, pitying smiles before averting their eyes and going back to their work. Hamble and Cortez, who had bought their tickets to Earth by getting friendly with one too many daughters of important officers aboard the Ark, (laughs) made no attempt to hide their gaze. And then there was Finn, who stood the moment she appeared, taking a step towards her before a shake from her head froze him in place. It shamed her. Clark, Finn began in a low voice. The muscles on his exposed arms tensed visibly. (laughs) No, Finn, she said, making fierce eye contact with the boy. I'm fine. There was a reason Clark had hid herself away after the attack. She didn't want anyone to see her in this condition. Down on the rock, the hundred only followed the strong... Her absence had, of course, left a power vacuum, and Bellamy Blake had begun spending more and more time in camp. Thankfully, he was nowhere to be seen at the moment. "'Monty, Jasper!' she shouted. The two of them appeared from the flap in another tent nearby. "'Grab the telescope. Let me know if you can see anything going on with the Ark.' They nodded, then disappeared back inside the tent. 
She turned her attention to Finn. Your wrist, she said sharply, holding up her own arm. Finn complied and raised his arm, showing her the dull gray band on his wrist. What's going on, Clark? He asked, but she ignored the question. There were no blinking lights on Finn's wristband, and looking around camp, she couldn't see any other obvious lights from those who hadn't yet removed the devices at Blake's urging. Looking back down at her own wristband, she was dismayed to see that her lights were no longer blinking either. Why did the signal stop? What's going on up there? Finn spoke again. You saw the lights too? She snapped her attention back to the boy, but didn't say anything. What does it mean? I don't know, she said in a whisper. Maybe a, a signal from the Ark. A signal? Finn said in surprise. Can they do that? Clark shrugged. The wristbands send signals to the Ark constantly, why not the other way around? The problem is, there's only one person who could order a message to be sent to us, and he's dead. The Chancellor? Finn asked. Clark nodded. The others were still, were still staring at her, but there was no point in hiding any information from the rest of them. If she was going to be their leader, she needed to be transparent and honest with them, and above all, she needed their help. She cleared her throat and raised her voice, addressing everyone in camp. Does anyone know where I can find Wells? Wells, as it turns out, was having a very nice time inside the pod that he had converted into his own private bachelor pad. <laughs> the former landing craft that had brought them all down to the rock at the start had been stripped and left out in the wastes by the rest of Clark's contingent, but Wells had decided to claim one of them for himself and stay put. Besides, he knew Clark wouldn't want him anywhere within stone-throwing distance of her or her camp. Right now, however, Clark was the last person on his mind. The girl they hid in the floor had made sure of that, and now <laughs> she was occupying both his mind and his entire field of vision. He slid a hand down the small of her back and pulled her even closer. Wells, she said breathily between kisses, we shouldn't. Why not, he said, burying his head in the nape of her neck. We can't, she began, her breath catching for a moment as he found that spot she liked. We can't, for reasons. <laughs> he smiled and pulled his face away for a moment, looking up into her beautiful, ridiculously huge brown eyes. Are you worried about your brother finding us? He ventured. Her eyebrows knit, and she pinched the exposed skin on his chest with her nail. Ow! I'm not talking about Bellamy, she said fiercely. He doesn't control me, he just thinks he does. Uh, Octavia he said carefully. This isn't about Clark, is it? She smiled at this. And if it is? Trust me, he said, pulling the girl closer yet again. She's not going to get between us. They kissed. At that moment, the door to the pod flew open, and there she was. Wells? shouted Clark, and he found the girl they hid in the floor sliding off his lap, much to his disappointment. Everything had suddenly gone ass over thruster. <laughs> what, what the hell is she doing here? Shrieked Octavia from her new position beside him on the re-entry couch. That's Bellamy's sister! Clark shouted in response. Yeah, Wells thought. This is bad. Clark, can you give us a second? He said to, the, to their intruder. 
Octavia cut in first. Wells, what's going on here? I have no idea. So I take it you're with him now? Clark asked Wells. She seemed to be holding herself upright with a large stick that had been fashioned into a crutch. Him who? Wells spat. Blake? It's none of your business, Octavia shouted to Clark. This was all getting completely out of hand. None of my business? Clark exploded. I came here for help, only to find this grounder spawn getting frisky with a bloody secondborn? Hey, hey, Whoa. you're just jealous because you want him for yourself. You think I want him? Clark shouted incredulously. He floated my dad. She pointed a finger straight at Wells. This had to end. He stood and raised his palms defensively. Whoa, I didn't float anyone, he said, making himself look as apologetic as possible. Clark, I I never meant... Well, you did, she spat back at him. She seemed near tears. But then her focus switched from his face to his right hand. You still have the wristband, she whispered. Wells was confused. He looked at the wristband, then back to Clark. I haven't switched sides. Blake killed my dad, you know, he said carefully, (laughs) not sure how he was supposed to act around Clark, who was, after all, his ex, especially with the girl he hoped would be his new new girlfriend still in the room. (laughs) He looked towards Octavia, who was still curled up on the couch, her arms crossed in front of her. She was glaring at him. Listen, he said in a panic, gesturing towards Clark. She means nothing to me. (laughs) Well, that's obvious, shouted Clark, before Octavia could open her mouth to respond. Octavia, came a shout from outside. Out of the way, princess. (laughs) Wells felt something retract into his body. Oh, crap, he said to himself. The door to the pod opened even wider, and there stood Bellamy Blake. His eyes shot past Clark, locked onto Wells for a moment, found his sister in a state of slight undress in the back of the pod, then locked back onto Wells with a fire that he had only ever seen in the eyes of an enraged grounder. I am gonna float you, Blake snorted. (laughs) He lunged forward, and Wells instinctively raised his fists in defense. Blake was older and larger than Wells, but he wasn't about to back down from a fight, especially with girls present. Besides, (laughs) his dad was dead because of Blake, and he hadn't forgotten it. Wells braced himself for the impending impact. Suddenly, however, Blake lurched and fell to the ground with a sharp crack and a loud oomph. Wells blinked in disbelief as he watched Clark casually toss the broken half of her crutch onto the ground next to Blake's prone form. Bellamy! Octavia shouted, jumping from her seat and crawling over to her brother, who was now moaning in pain. Wells was stunned. There was a small patch of blood forming on the back of Blake's head where Clark had hit him with the stick. He looked up to Clark, his eyes wide with shock. You you hit him, he said stupidly. That was amazing. The corners of Clark's mouth twitched and she shot him the tiniest of fleeting smiles. <laughs> you can't do this, shouted Octavia. I'm gonna go get help. She got off the floor and ran past Clark out into the wastes. Wells didn't know what to say. There he was, face to face with his ex, who hadn't said more than five words to him in the last six months, and the brother of his new girl, not to mention the man who killed his father, who was bleeding on the floor between them. It was weird. 
but Clark made it look easy. Your wristband, she said, getting down to business despite Blake's pained moans filling the small pod. Did you notice the lights, or were you too busy with something else? <laughs> he felt her barb, but ignored it and peered down at his wristband. There were lights? <laughs> a pattern. A signal from the Ark, I'm guessing. Would it be possible for the Chancellor to send such a signal? My dad's dead, Clark, he said, then planted a good kick in Blake's ribs. The older man shouted and tried to swipe Wells's legs away ineffectively. Is it possible, Clark repeated. Wells thought for a moment. Well, if anyone could do it, it would be the Chancellor. Do you think he could have survived? He asked, feeling a desperate shred of hope within himself. I don't know, she said sadly, her eyes lingering on Blake's form. But I'm more concerned about what is so important that the Ark would want to signal all of us simultaneously. She met Wells' eyes again. Something's going on up there, Wells, and I'm worried. Clark! came a frantic shout from outside. She turned, and Wells craned his neck to see Monty jogging towards them, puffing and wheezing with the exertion. What is it, Monty? Clark asked him. The Ark! The boy coughed as he came to a stop before her, planting his hands on his chubby knees for support as he caught his breath. Take it easy, she said. Tell me what happened. Wells stepped over Blake's body and joined Clark at the doorway. Monty coughed again, then stood up straight, still breathing heavily. <sighs> Jasper and I set up the telescope. <sighs> More breathing. After a moment, he continued. <sighs> and punched in the coordinates for the Ark. <sighs> but it wasn't there. What wasn't there? Clark asked. <sighs> the Ark! Monty said simply. The Ark is gone! <sighs> Wells immediately looked to Clark to gauge her reaction. She just continued to stare at Monty as if willing him to keep talking. It worked. We scanned the sky, using every data point for a possible location we could, but we couldn't find it. Could you be mistaken? Clark asked quietly. Monty shook his head. Wells couldn't believe what he was hearing. How could the Ark just disappear? It was a huge complex of satellites that had all been lashed together. It didn't have the thrusters or the fuel to be able to wildly alter course. If Monty and Jasper couldn't find it, then there was only one possibility. He looked up to the sky, trying in vain to see any sign of their home, but if the nerds couldn't see it with a telescope, how could he have any hope of spotting it with his naked eye? There, Wells shouted, pointing to a distant area of the sky near the horizon. The other two started and followed his gaze, shielding their eyes against the late afternoon sun. There, standing out against the slight pink of the oncoming evening, they could all see it. A meteor shower. No, Clark breathed. Our families, said Monty. They, they can't be. They're gone, Wells said. Clark looked at him, her eyes wide and scared. He had never seen her that way before, and there was nothing he could do. I'm sorry. The end. From episode 26... Andrew writes My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic, based on the animated series created by Lauren Faust. This week, on a very special episode of My Little Pony, Friendship <laughs> is Magic, we have Twilight Sparkle in Horseshoe Detective. Or, forget it, Spike, it's Ponyville. 
The sugar-coated gumdrop rain pitter-pattered on the window of Twilight Sparkle's cozy office. The private <laughs> pony detective slumped on her desk and stared out of the window in a daze. She hadn't slept well in over a week. She had too much on her mind to sleep. First, there was Spike's hospitalization. That horrible incident <laughs> with the candy shop taffy puller last week had resulted in multiple dislocated and fractured bones throughout the little dragon's body. Oh my god. <laughs> He was now laid up in a full body cast from the tip of his snout to the tip of his tail. Mm. Poor thing, Sparkle thought. Second, there was the more pressing concern. This case. The biggest to hit Ponyville since a series of sandwich thefts at last summer's teddy bear picnic. Sparkle let out a big yawn as her part-time secretary, Applejack, entered the room. Now, now, darling, Applejack said with a shake of her head. <laughs> Don't you be yawning just yet. We got a full afternoon of appointments for Miss Rarity's case. Is any pony here yet? Sparkle asked while rubbing an eye with a hoofed foot. The suspects have arrived, Applejack replied with a smirk. Miss Rarity, too. Should knock a word before the others come in. Applejack turned to leave, but stopped in the doorway to address Sparkle again. By the way, you look just awful, dear. Can I get you one of my signature red delicious apples? Might help. Big Mackie picked him just this morning. No, thank you, Applejack, Sparkle said. Please, send Rarity in. Applejack <laughs> nodded and exited. Sparkle appreciated the honesty and directness of her friend. These were qualities, these qualities were why Sparkle chose Applejack for her secretary. She knew the pony could be trusted, absolutely. <laughs> Detective Sparkle. A recognizable voice said from the door. Sparkle perked up as Rarity trotted into the office, closing the door behind her. As usual, the unicorn looked stunning. Her shiny pearl coat was impeccably groomed and accompanied perfectly by a sequined blue and purple jacket. Ribbons of matching colors were weaved in amongst the long, flowing locks of her bubblegum-toned mane. Sparkle had to stop herself from groaning. Leave it to Rarity, she thought. One of the worst crimes in Ponyville history is taking place at her shop, and she still finds the time to look like that. Sparkle hadn't changed clothes in three days. She hadn't even been home. <laughs> How can I help you, Rarity? Sparkle asked. I'm sure you noticed I have a full waiting stable of suspects for your case. Indeed, I did, the unicorn said. I just wanted to thank you again for all your help. I know how much work you've put into this. Not as much as you've put into that outfit, Sparkle thought before replying. You're welcome, but it's all part of the job. She opened a side drawer on her desk, retrieved a carrot, and took a bite. Rarity eyed the carrot. Mind if I bum one of those? She asked. Sparkle peered into the drawer. She didn't have many left. After a moment's hesitation, she tossed one to Rarity, who caught it. Thank you, detective, she said. You're a good friend. Sparkle didn't know why but something about that remark made her tummy upset. <laughs> for the rest of the morning, one by one, Sparkle brought in suspects for questioning. The first was Fluttershy. It went about as Sparkle had expected. What were you doing at Rarity Shop that day? Sparkle asked. I have witnesses placing you there before the incident. In the chair across from her, the little blue pegasus was trembling from her wings to her hooves. 
Oh, um, well, I, I, I don't know. I don't remember. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, don't remember. Oh, this is, this is, this is just so much pressure. Oh, gosh. Oh, golly. Oh, gosh. Oh, golly. Oh, golly. Her voice quickly softened to an inaudible volume, though her lips continued to move as if she were still speaking. Sparkle picked up her glitter pen off the desk and crossed Fluttershy's name off her suspect list. Next time, or next up, was Pinkie Pie. My Celestia's crown, I just, like, can't believe it, Pinky said. <laughs> it's horrible. Who would do this? The pink pony chewed a piece on a piece of pink bubble gum as she spoke, while absently braiding her mane. Meanwhile, Sparkle <laughs> was trying her best to keep her eyes open. That's the question I need to answer, Pinky, Sparkle said. But first I need an answer from you. What were you doing at Rarity's shop that day? Well, da-doy, Sparkle! Pinky replied, you know what I just love Rarity Shop? It's the best, most fashionablest boutique in all of Ponyville. I'm in there almost every day. I hardly shop anywhere else. Any particular reason for your visit that day? Sparkle asked before realizing how unnecessary that question was. A party! Pinky shouted with a flourish. Ha! You know me, girl. I was hosting a party at the Cutie Kitten Club that night, and I needed a new outfit. You know, just something ridiculously cute that didn't attract cat hair. You see, I'm allergic. I probably shouldn't have taken the job, but I just love, love, love those itty-bitty kitties. I could squeeze them forever and ever and ever. And by the way, do you have any spells that repel pet dander? I mean, I just need to... As Pinkie Pie continued, Sparkle crossed her name off the list. (laughs) You look sleepy, Sparks, Rainbow Dash observed. Yeah. It's, it's been a long week, Sparkle replied as she took a drink of homemade apple juice Applejack had brought for her. Rainbow Dash was the last suspect on her list. The impressive Pegasus was a loyal friend, but Sparkle couldn't rule out her friend's magnificent speed, which may have aided her in committing the crime. I have to admit, Dash began, it's strange to be in this position. It's mostly a formality, Dash, Sparkle explained. I have a source saying you were at Rarities that day. Well, they aren't lying. Dash admitted. I was there. Rarity had a white leather jacket with rainbow fringe on display that was literally calling my name. Literally? Sparkle asked. Yeah, I think Rarity put a charm on it or something. Oh, I I see. Listen, Sparks, Dash said, leading forward. Given the circumstances of the crime, I, I don't understand why I or any of the others from the waiting stable were brought here today. What do you mean? Sparkle asked. Uh, well, none of us can... Perform magic, Dash explained. I'm no detective, but I think it's pretty clear what happened was done by a unicorn. Sparkle's tummy felt uneasy again. She didn't like where Dash was going with this. (laughs) You're right, Dash. You aren't a detective. You can't know for sure. Dash must not have liked Sparkle's tone because her cheeks began to flush. The hooves I can't, Dash protested. (laughs) Sparks, do you honestly believe what you're saying here? What makes you think I don't, Sparkle retorted, because Rarity's entire store was filled to bursting with sticky, oopy-goopy marshmallow cream. (laughs) What do you think? That one of us poured all that down her chimney, pail by pail? I don't know, but you're pretty fast, Dash. Not that fast. No ponies that fast. Not even the Wonderbolts. It's ridiculous. Yeah, well, Sparkle hesitated. Dash was right. It did sound ridiculous. Still, she couldn't back down now after all the work she'd put in. So what would you have me believe then, Dash? 
That Fluttershy did it? Pinkie Pie? You know as well as I do, they aren't capable of such a, such a thing. You're the only pony left. Dash leaned away then. The flush in her cheeks diminished. She looked at Sparkle with concern in her eyes. You don't see it, do you? <laughs> no. No, you're too sleepy. <laughs> what? Sparkle urged. What don't I see? Dash sighed before replying. It's you, Sparks. You did it. <laughs> Anger began to bubble up in Sparkle's tummy like soap in a hot bath. She felt her own cheeks flush and legs tremble. Me, she thought? The bad pony? How dare Dash say such a thing? After everything I've done, I get the blame? I'm the one who saves the day. I solve the crimes. All Rarity does is make beautiful clothes with sequins and ribbons and fringes and every pony loves her. It's not fair! She yelled out loud. Dash jumped at her sudden outburst. Sparkle instantly felt ashamed. She hung her head and put her face in her hooves. The haze of the last week was starting to make sense. With a sudden swing of the door, Applejack entered the office followed by Rarity. What in tarnation was that? Applejack asked. What's going on in here? Detective, Rarity asked. Are you well? Sparkle didn't answer for a moment. The soft sound of the other unicorn's voice hurt her heart. She had worked so hard to forget, but that voice reminded her of what she had done, and why she had done it. She lifted her chin up and looked Rarity right in the eye. She felt a cool, wet tear slide down her cheek as she opened her mouth to sing. I did it. It was me. Rarity, I filled your shop with marshmallow cream. I'm so sorry for what I've done. Being a jealous pony isn't very fun. I should have told you how I felt, but I kept it all inside. Friends speak the truth, but in this case I lied. I remember now, so sleepy. Rarity, I cast the spell from within my dreams. I'm so sorry for what I've done. Cleaning that mess up couldn't have been fun. I hope you can forgive me for destroying your whole store. I know I hurt you. And you deserve so much more. <laughs> when Sparkle was finished, Rarity was smiling. The pearl-coated unicorn trotted up to Sparkle's desk, placed one of her hooves atop one of Sparkle's, looked her in the eye, and said, Of course I forgive you, Sparkle. You're my friend. And then Sparkle smiled too. Her heart still hurt, but it was a good hurt. From episode 27, Marcus Wright's Cowboy Bebop, based on the anime series created by Hajime Yatate. I present to you session 7, The Last Lunar Symphony, in four movements. Three, two, one. Let's jam. Yes! Yes! <laughs> Allegro. Spike. It was a hell of a lot of wulongs. And it could be a hell of a lot more if Lady Luck didn't come back for her share. Or a hell of a lot less if she didn't come back but stole more than her share on the way out. 
Of course, it could just be a hell of a lot of trouble if she was lying about the whole gig, and Spike had to find her again when it was all done. One thing was certain. Those were Red Dragon Syndicate ships he had just gunned down over the surface of the moon. <laughs> so this was going to be a hell of a lot of fun. Clear a path to the drilling platform, Jed had said. Now, in the soft blue light of the Earth, the dancing orange flames of the Red Dragon ships, it was time to make music. Spike had the Instadome atmosphere to thank for three things. Confirming it was the Red Dragon Syndicate... Who else had the Wulongs for that kind of tech? Allowing the downed vessels to burst beautifully alight, and, most importantly, keeping Spike from needing a helmet to gun down his targets. His hair hated that, and if his hair was happy, Spike was happy. <laughs> he popped open the cockpit before the Swordfish 2 even touched the surface, and leaped out in a low-gravity flip with a flourish, guns blazing. The recoil of the shots pushed him back, but he used their force to his advantage, falling into a devastatingly cool three-point landing, Surrounded by kicked up clouds of moon dust. Jet would remind him that the moon dust was radioactive, but he also wouldn't understand how jazz this was. When the dust cleared, Spike could see that he had killed two of the syndicate thugs closest to his impromptu landing zone. He wasn't surprised, but he hadn't really been looking either. There were six two person ships he had shot down in a neat little line approaching the drilling platform. Most of the thugs were probably still alive. Spike missed having the Red Dragon's expensive equipment with working ejector seats, but that just meant more fun for him. His sightline was garbage between the ruins of the old moon outposts, the abandoned reclamation equipment, and the newly introduced wreckage of the Syndicate ships. A bullet struck him in the shoulder before he could get a full count of the survivors. Return fire reduced that count by one. Clear a path, Jet had said. It was time to jam. Adagio. Jet. So far, Faye's tip had checked out. They hadn't picked up this bounty from Punch and Judy, but it wasn't uncommon for the government to hide things, especially when it came to Earth. Jet landed the hammerhead directly on the drilling platform after flying over the path of wanton destruction Spike had left for him. He wasn't surprised to see Spike already in the entryway, leaning against the short metal wall and wrapping his fresh gunshot wounds. After three years, Jet still didn't understand why Spike always started with his hair. Jet raised a metal finger to his lips to keep Spike from bragging about his latest exploit. There'd be time for that later. Now it was time for Jet to see if the rest of Faye's tip checked out. Was the bounty really one rogue, or would there be more violence inside the control room? He hoped there wouldn't be. He was hungry. (laughs) The hatch was locked. Ed could have hacked it in a minute, but Jet had asked her to stay back until all clear. It wasn't worth her getting caught up in Spike's fun. Still, having a mechanical arm had its advantages and Jet's metal fingers easily pried open the barrier. It fell to the ground with a crunch. So much for the element of surprise. Jet bent down through the small opening to the control room. He had his hands raised in peace, but it was immediately clear that the man who stood inside had no intention to use the gun he lazily pointed in Jet's direction. You don't look like you want trouble, Jet said. The man in the jumpsuit had eyes that were being kept open by fear and urgency, fighting the fatigue that defined his posture. He gave Jet a half-smile when he spoke. You don't look like the Red Dragon Syndicate. Captain Jet Black of the Bebop. He reached out with his left hand to spare the man his metal grip. The man put down his gun to shake it. Morris Howell. Are you here for the bounty, then? Well, Jet said, picking the gun up off the table and clearing the chamber and magazine before replacing it. That depends. What are you doing here? Scherzo. Ed. For a fraction of a second, Ed had been worried that she had found out, or when she had found out, that they were going back to Earth. She considered for a portion of that time that they may have discovered what she was doing on the satellite when they had first found her, 
In the next instant, she remembered that they could, she could destroy any of them instantly once they got within range of her old array. Then she remembered that they weren't very bright and decided that a trip back home would be fun. And boy, was Ed right. <laughs> Jet had given up on the bounty as soon as he had met the man they were sent after. Ed added that incident to her file and noted that it tipped the odds towards not following through on their missions more often than not. The man, Morris, had given a boring story about how his people lived on the moon and his son had died and he wanted his daughter to see home again and blah, blah, blah. The interesting part was that the man was trying to crack the moon in two like an egg so people could live on the flat halves that weren't ruined by radiation during the Great War. Of course, the way he was trying to do it would have killed everybody and destroyed the moon, but it was a cool idea. The problem with drilling through the moon is that the fissure points wouldn't be exactly even. The split would cause a gravitational imbalance, and the two halves would bounce into each other, making more and more bits until moon dust rained into Earth's atmosphere in a fiery blaze, destroying whatever life was left. White sky. <laughs> the Stevenson hypothesis. It wouldn't go well for the satellites either, and Ed couldn't have that. So, the answer was to rig the old laser system to surgically cut the moon in two, in a way that would send the two halves into a synchronous orbit and generally not kill everyone at all. Ed could hack that. She rearranged the comm link to point to her old network, and surrounded herself with the colors of hacking. She thought she heard Jet or Spike or someone say something about reinforcements arriving when she lost herself in the system, but that sounded boring. This was art. Rondo. <laughs> Faye. Faye's tip was half right. The Dragon Syndicate was on a bounty for a miner who had hijacked a drilling station on the moon. The problem was, the other half of the tip, the part where there was a valuable stash for her to take off with on the dark side, was a complete lie. Now she had to decide if it was worth lying about her latest attempt to run away from the bebop after turning a score to her advantage. In the end, she decided she was too hungry to lie, and just joined the boys and Radical Ed at the platform with no explanation of her absence. Spike was wrapped in bandages from head to waist, and Jet was pacing back and forth anxiously in front of a sweating, overweight man in a jumpsuit. She really needed to get away for a while. There was that casino in the belt she'd been meaning to visit. Good to see you, Lady Luck, Spike said, smiling through his bandages. We're about to die. What else is new? Faye asked. It looks like the old guard and the Red Dragon Syndicate are converging on us. They fixed the gate Ed hacked when we came through, Jet said. Now our lives are at the mercy of Redhead Ed, splitting the moon in half with a laser so we can take the bebop out of here, Spike said. So, it really is the usual, Faye said. She stretched her arms behind her head, arching her back in a way that made Jumpsuit turn to stare at his toes, swallowed in a fresh wave of sweat. She winked at him, then walked over to Ed. Dear, do you think you could hurry it up? I'm mighty peckish, and we'll all be pretty dead if we don't get a move on. This takes time, Ed said. The fact that she was talking at all was a good sign. It meant Ed was coming to the end. No one lives here. It's okay if it's not perfect. Ed knows that. Ed also knows about the Stevenson hypothesis, and the death everyone is ignoring, but that's not the point. Making the two halves split is easy, planning their rotation is hard, and aligning them at the right angle is... necessary. Necessary for what? Faye said. For the view! Ed did it! We gotta go. Morris, you're with us, Jet barked. No need to worry. Ed annihilated the incoming ships with their laser array. We're safe to enjoy the view. Ed thumbed a control, and the screen she had been hacking turned into an exterior display that began to fill with a cacophony of lasers intersecting the very moon they were standing on. Faye hoped Ed's calculations were correct. Coda. Ein. <laughs> For a moment, Ein was just a dog. He bounded gleefully over the perfectly flat surface of the northern moon interior. The southern moon crested above him, and he saw the sun rise over the pale blue dot that was the home of his ancestors. 
Nearby, his crew was speaking with the man that they had come to capture and had ended up helping. He liked his crew, and they thought he was a good boy. Then, without warning, Ayn's contextualization algorithm kicked in, and he became terrifyingly aware of what had just taken place. The calculations Ed had to have made to split the moon perfectly without fallout from the Stevenson hypothesis were beyond even his enhanced abilities. But what was truly remarkable was that what he saw when the sun finally illuminated the surface. Both halves of the moon were in perfect geosynchronous orbit over South America. All eyes looking up from the colonies that would one day be built in the core of the old moon would see Ed's smiling symbol looking down at them. The odds of being able to achieve that orbit using only the force of gravity and the timing of the laser array were incalculable. There was so much more to radical Ed than she let on. Ayn was only able to hope for the day that the crew might inquire if she was telling the whole truth, and he could bark two times in return. For now, he contented himself with being a dog and bathing in the light of her stellar accomplishments. From episode 28, Andrew and Marcus write Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, based on the anime series written by Hiroshi Anogi, adapted from the manga created by Hiromu Arakawa. His blade struck exactly where he intended, cutting clear through the leather bonds that held together the breast and waist plates of his enemy's armor. With one swing, two collapsed in a rattling, scraping heap onto the floor. No blood, no entrails. Nothing but empty, clanking metal. Not unlike yourself, young Alphonse, a voice said in his head. The memory flared his temper as three more figures attacked from the side. He turned on them, swinging his massive, four-and-a-half-foot blade in a wide arc. This move knocked them all back, stumbling. With his next swing, it sent a helm flying, the next, an arm. He felt no remorse hacking these enemies to bits, for they felt none for those whom they attacked. They felt nothing, including pain, because they were nothing. They were empties. Suits of armor, animated using alchemy. Hmm. Is there really any difference between you and them? A voice asked. The question had lingered with him. Of course there is, he thought, squeezing the hilt of his sword tighter. Stop thinking about it. Edward would think you're being ridiculous. (laughs) Edward. His older brother was currently unconscious draped over Alphonse's left shoulder. They'd been ambushed by the empties earlier, and Edward had taken a club to the back of the head. The gash left there was serious. Alphonse had to get his brother out. The courtyard with the castle gate was just ahead, but the empties kept appearing out of side hallways. He cut two more down, bisecting them at the waist. Seriously, he thought, frustration roiling inside him. How many can the animator possibly control? The animator was the alchemist responsible for the empties, and for luring Alphonse and his brother to this castle. As Edward had quickly explained earlier, the animator was known for using potential and kinetic energy from machines to make inanimate objects move. They'd come to the castle thinking it derelict and holding clues about the Philosopher's Stone. Instead, they'd walked right into the animator's stronghold, and a trap. After another effective slice, an enemy helm struck the stone floor with a metallic ring. The sound pulled Alphonse's attention to the ground, where he saw the pieces. Breastplates, gauntlets, helms. They all wriggled and rattled there, trying to pull themselves back together. A few sets of torsos with arms dragged themselves toward Alphonse, swords in hand, in an effort to attack again. The sight made him sick. He kicked the helm nearest him and began hacking at the bonds between... 
any other armored pieces that remained together. When he'd finished with those in front of him, he swung around to continue on those behind. That's when he saw the blood. A small pool on the ground reflected the torchlight. He knew to whom it belonged. Edward. They had to escape. He firmed his grip on his brother and turned back around. No other empties were in sight. Without another wasted moment, he ran down the hallway toward the exit. To Alphonse's surprise, the courtyard was clear of enemies. The castle gate ahead was completely unprotected. However, as he ran towards it, he heard a melange of sound over the castle walls. Swords clashing, men shouting in rage and, sc- in rage and screaming in pain, the sounds of battle. He and his brother had come to this place alone. Who's outside? he thought. Alphonse stopped next to the winch that lowered the gate and listened for any indication of whom it could be. He, in- he needed to determine if they were friend or foe. He was answered fairly quickly when a man's voice shouted, Push the pieces into the river! Don't let them attack from the ground! Good enough for me, he thought. He didn't have time to waste. He kicked the winch release, breaking it with a harsh, with a harsh snap. A rushing rattle of chains followed as the gate fell outward and then crashed down on the other side to complete the short bridge over the river into the castle. Alphonse stepped into the open gateway, Edward still on his shoulder. He looked down to the opposite end of the bridge, where a modest militia, he'd have guessed numbering about 200, were finishing off a few remaining empties, pushing them into the river below. Excellent, he thought. No more of those awful things to worry about. As the thought came to mind, he heard a shout from down the bridge. It's the animator! (laughs) Someone cried, followed by a few echoing statements and an angry surge of the crowd. Where? Alphonse thought. He turned and surveyed the courtyard behind and what he could see of the battlements above. The animator was nowhere that he could see. He turned back to the militia and saw a man step forward past the few remaining pockets of fighting on the bridge. His comrades had the remaining empties contained. He pointed at Alphonse with his sword. Enough tricks, animator. Call off your abomination and come forward alone. Anger flickered inside Alphonse. Settle down, he thought. The man's mistaken. Is there really any difference? The question appeared in his mind again. Stop, he thought. Forget that. Tell this man who you are. I do not belong to the animator, he called to him. My name is Alphonse Elric. The man on my shoulder is my brother. He needs help. He sensed a shiver go over the crowd. The man who addressed him turned back to his company. Do not fear, my friends. Remember why we came here, to put an end to our fear. He gestured back to Alphonse with his sword. This monster is to blame. Just look at him now, speaking through the mouth of one of his soulless creations. The company murmured their agreement. Soulless. The word hung in Alphonse's mind. No, he shouted back. You are mistaken. But the man continued. He's killed our children. He's killed our wives. He's killed our brothers. I am not his creation, Alphonse cried back, voice cracking as he spoke. Tonight, the man stated with finality, we kill him. And with that, the man charged forward. His company roared in reply and followed. Fear engulfed Alphonse. He didn't know what to do. He knew Edward would have. Edward. 
He slipped his brother off his shoulder and rested him against the side of the gateway. He was still unconscious. Alphonse shook his brother by the shoulders, careful not to strike his head against the stone behind. Edward, he shouted. I need you. You have to wake up. No response. He looked down the bridge. The raging militia was halfway across. Edward, he shouted again. Still no response. The rumbling steps grew closer, and with them came clear shouts of angry voices. Abomination! They aren't talking to me, Alphonse thought, despite the burning he felt inside. The bridge below shook from the approaching men. Monster! No, he reinforced. Not me. Solace! You're wrong. He felt his hand leaving his brother's shoulders. Is there really any difference? The animator voice, the animator's words echoed in his head again. The men were only paces away. Empty! The words seemed to hit him like a physical object. It rattled through the metal armor that was his body, but the rattle didn't dissipate. It intensified. Alphonse was shaking, not in fear, but in fury. He felt his right hand grasp the hilt of his sword and draw, and as he did, his voice escaped him in a curdling scream. I am not empty! He lunged forward and swung his sword in a high, wide arc. Every man within its reach was instantly decapitated. Fountains of blood surged from the exposed arteries and rained down on the living nearby. These men panicked and stopped, which caused those behind to slam into their backs, pushing them into Alphonse's next swing. This one went lower, cutting open bellies and spilling bowels and more blood onto the ground. Just from the first two blows, the bridge surface was covered with enough fluid and viscera to cause those running to slip off their feet. They hit the ground and were soon met by falling boots as the next line of charging men pushed forward to meet Alphonse's third swing. More heads rolled and blood sprayed. A fourth swing, more blood, more entrails on the ground. None of this phased Alphonse. Not even the sounds. The ripping of flesh against his blade. The anguished cries of the disemboweled. The wet thud of boots on bloody corpses. It all seemed to pass by without effect. He felt nothing. The suit was independent of him. The atrocities at its feet were not of his doing, but, of the, but the work of a mindless automaton. There was nothing inside the suit. He was nothing. Until he did hear something. Snap! Boom! Alphonse watched blankly as the bridge ahead exploded in a line of splinters, sending men toppling over one another and into the river. Snap! Boom! A second explosion erupted from behind, sending Alphonse headfirst into the floor. He blacked out as his head made contact. A bird chirped. Tree branches rustled. Water gently flowed. As sight returned to Alphonse, the first thing he saw was the blue sky above. Then a bird. Maybe the one that had just chirped, he thought. He sat up slowly and hung his head, looking down at the ground beneath him. Wood. The bridge surface. It was covered in dried blood. His body stiffened at the sight until to his right, drawn in blood, he saw a rune. Edward, he thought. He turned to his left where his brother now stood. With his back turned, they were floating down the river. Hmm. Edward must have used his power to break this piece of the bridge away as a makeshift raft. His brother always had the best escape plans. Edward, he said to catch his brother's attention. 
Edward turned only slightly at his voice before turning back to the river ahead. Edward? he asked, but his brother remained silent. Alphonse slowly peered back down at the dried blood on the raft's surface. He touched a spot lightly with the tip of a large metal finger and pulled it away. It flooded him then, a heavy sinking sensation deep inside. He wanted to cry, but no tears came. They never did. He turned back to his brother. Edward, it's me, he pleaded. I'm in here. His brother didn't respond. It was almost clear when he slept. In the space of his dreams, Edward was whole, and his memories of his glimpse beyond made an unspeakable sense. The other side of the door that seemed only chaos when recalled in his waking hours had meaning and order. The man who had spoken to him, by the gate of the void, had different words to say when he visited in sleep. If only Edward could hear them. If only... The images faded when Edward woke. Cold sweat ran down the skin that was left to him, as his automail fist clinched tight with the shock of the dawn air. It had been months since he had lost his mother for a second time. The horrors of that night surrounded him like a transmutation circle, turning all the joy that could have been his into anger and purpose. His momentary mourning pity dissolved when his eyes adjusted enough to see the suit of armor standing next to him. Alphonse hadn't moved all night. Edward wondered if his brother could even sleep anymore. As horrible as it had been for Edward breaking the great taboo, he could hardly conceive of what it had been like for Alphonse to lose everything to have his soul rended from his body and tied to a mechanical husk. At times he wondered if death would have been less cruel. Move out, alchemist. Edward packed his sleeping bag and threw it into the truck with the rest of the gear. They had cleared East City but still had a long drive ahead of them until they reached Savia, the settlement they were looking for. His commander had told him that this order came from the Fuhrer himself, but Edward didn't care. He was just happy to be out of Central City following their run-in with Envy the week before. Homunculi were nasty good at taking lives for things that shouldn't have been alive to begin with. Alphonse only moved when Edward got into the driver's seat and started the ignition. The truck sank slightly with the added weight of the armor filling the passenger seat. I know it's not the Elric brothers' road trip we planned when we were kids, Edward said, but I'm glad you're here by my side. I can't seem to get away, Alphonse said. (laughs) Edward chose to imagine it was with a smile. Hours rolled by behind the wheel, and Edward felt his mind drifting as they got closer to the settlement. It was abnormal to send an alchemist so far out of Central City to one of the colony outposts. They were part of the Greater Empire, yes, but they weren't in rebellion. When when that was the case, they typically didn't get much notice. According to Commander Lusana, there was a great dispute that needed to be resolved. Apparently, that was enough for the Fuhrer to send his most prized alchemist to go play sheriff. Something told Edward the situation on the ground might be more than he was told. The great flat nothingness that reached out before them was a stark contrast to the cities they had left behind. There were no paved roads here, only the worn dirt path that the farmers used to bring their goods out for trade. The rows of crops were just organized enough to tell they were designed by men, despite the lack of anyone to be seen working the fields. Edward didn't know if he should be concerned by that. Agriculture never seemed very important to a man who could shape the elements to his will. The light of the sun on the horizon grew as it rose in the sky, until everything Edward could see was pure white. He walked in a circle and saw that the void stretched out in all directions, infinitely around him, 
that there was a great door in the center of this place with no bounds. Genius and madness lay in equal measures on the other side, the two pillars of knowing. Edward ran to the door, but a hand on his shoulder stopped him. He turned, expecting to see the figure who had shown him the truth, but instead found Alphonse's face. His brother's true eyes met Edward's for a moment before they faded into the metal helm he had been bound to. The white evaporated and the sounds of his brother shouting faded in. Edward gripped the wheel of the truck and swerved just in time to avoid the huddled form in the center of the road. The sudden turn on the dirt path caused the truck to go into a roll. Without hesitation, Edward drew his focus into the etched transmutation circle in his automail arm, and when he reached into the air, a giant hand of dirt mirrored his movements, catching the truck. The abrupt stop slammed Edward's head against the roof, but pain was nothing new to him, and he kept his focus. He set the vehicle down and let go of the connection, returning the dirt to the earth. I told you I could drive, Alphonse said. Edward suspected that his impervious metal body hadn't taken the same level of injury Edward was now enjoying. I felt like walking anyway, Edward said. He managed to pry himself out of his seat and stand without throwing up. Let's just make sure whoever's that was is okay out there. Resting in the middle of the path, a short walk from their now crumpled truck, the body was far from okay. Gray had taken over the skin and there was no heartbeat to be found. The man lay supine with dead eyes staring up at Edward and Alphonse. What do you think happened to him? Edward asked. Them, Alphonse said softly. What? Edward still crouched low over the body, feeling for any trace of the soul. What happened to them? Alphonse said. Edward looked up. Dozens of bodies were laid out on the road to Savia. The two brothers walked in silence for a time, verifying that each person they encountered was beyond their help. As the grain bins and dwellings of the settlement began to take shape in the distance, Edward saw no sign of movement. He had never seen a disease like this before, but was running a low-grade transformation of the air around his mouth to keep it uncontaminated. If this spread to the city, it would be far worse than any uprising. Had the Fuhrer known about this? If so, why hadn't Commander Lusana said anything? The center of the settlement had no bodies, but no more living people. Edward hunched down by the form of a young girl. She couldn't have been older than five, and placed his fingers on her neck, feeling for a pulse. Nothing. So, are we just going to ignore the fact that you fell asleep while driving and almost killed yourself? Alphonse said. I don't know what I can say. That's never happened to me before. It's a hard thing to make a habit of when it's so easy to die from. It wasn't like that. Edward said. Something's been happening in my sleep. I, I've been seeing that day when you, when we tried to bring Mom, I see the void. That sounds normal to me, Alphonse said. <laughs> I relive tragedy in my dreams as well. Edward was happy to hear that his brother still dreamed, even if they weren't sweet. I don't think it's that simple. The man I told you about, I, I think he's trying to tell me something new. If it's really a dream, you're just trying to tell yourself something. It's not me, I swear. I don't know how I can explain, but... A pulse. A single heartbeat. Edward pulled his hand away from the girl in shock. He hadn't even realized he had left it there as he was talking to his brother. It must have been a full minute without a pulse, and then just one beat. We have to go. Now. What's wrong? Alphonse said. What if no one in this town was dead? What if they were just sleeping? That's impossible, unless... Sloth. 
Edward said at the same time as his brother. They'd speculated about the other homunculi for a long time. After seeing what Envy did to the Fuhrer's Furious Council, they swore they'd be prepared if they ever found another. Sloth was particularly hard to track down because he was never active. Reports of his behavior came from those around him, losing track of their own goals. Then, there were the sleepwalkers. Edward tried to get distance between himself and the bodies, but he was too late. The girl's hand grabbed Edward's leg and made a dent in the automail. Great! The rumors of the sleepwalkers' enhanced strength just had to be true. (laughs) Alphonse was quick to step in and tear the girl away. Her fingers snapped sickeningly as she was pulled apart from Edward. If she ever woke from the sloth's trance, her hand would never fully heal. No time to think of that. The rest of the town was beginning to move. Two transmutation circles on the soles of Edward's feet began to glow, and he summoned the ground to carry him forward on giant waves of dirt. Miniature mountains rose and fell beneath him to hasten his stride, as Alphonse ran below with joints that weren't limited by human endurance. In moments they reached the truck, but before Edward could even begin to hope that it might still drive, he saw the figure of a man sitting on the hood. The piercing eyes of the homunculi that had first looked up at him when he arrived in Savia were now filled with dangerous intelligence. As Edward looked into the deep black of the eyes, they turned white and expanded over the gray-skinned face, eventually reaching out beyond the boundaries of the man himself and enveloping the world around Edward. This time, the man by the great door in the void had a recognizable face and spoke clearly. I've been trying to reach you for some time, Edward Elric, Sloth said. But you have been ignoring me. The Fuhrer was much easier to speak to. He relies on his dreams rather than rebel against them. Edward struggled to wake up. He needed to break free. Alphonse needed him. Do not worry for your waking self or your chained brother's soul. Come to me, Edward Elric, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. From episode 29, Marcus and Eric write The Leftovers, based on the television series created by Damon Lindelof and Tom Parada, based on Parada's novel. I wasn't sure what I had expected, but when I pictured hotshot Hollywood producer, I didn't see Bruce. He was tall, which I liked, but there was nothing else that was good about him. His hair was cut too short, he hadn't updated his wardrobe since Seinfeld was on the air, and that shitty goatee was enough to make me question whether I should have called off the whole thing right then. Of course, he was filthy rich, and when it came right down to it, that's the only reason I was there. He was standing next to his BMW just outside the Burbank Film Studio where he no doubt spent his days deciding which young set of tits was going to help his leading man save the world that week. You're late, he said as he opened the passenger door for me. I giggled at this and used my best 16-year-old girl voice to say, fashionably I hope. I caught a (laughs) smile from him as I adjusted the ludicrously short skirt I was wearing and sidled into the car. Bruce climbed in on the other side and looked me up and down. I smiled and made that face that said, I'm pretending to look self-conscious, but I secretly love the attention. (laughs) It was something I had mastered back when I actually was a 16-year-old girl and not just pretending to be one. You really do look like her, he said after a moment, a tone of greedy excitement in his voice. Like who? I replied, playing with the curls in my newly blonde hair. You're not thinking about some other girl, are you? 
I thought you'd be happy to see me after being gone for two whole years. He smirked and nodded after a moment, then put the car in gear. Not bad. But next time, don't be late. Especially since I paid you in advance. The shots he sent me were a little blurry, but they were definitely her. It actually made me kind of excited. I mean, I'd never been a famous person before, so there was a thrill to it. Of course, Bruce wanted to make sure I'd get all the details right. The right hair, the right makeup, the right clothes, even the right underwear. And if anyone was going to notice something as trivial as the wrong underwear, it would be Bruce, I suppose. He was the one who took those fucking photos, after all. He wanted me to be exactly like she was the first time he saw her. A fresh-faced, 16-year-old wannabe actress filled to the brim with dreams of Hollywood stardom. I could be that, I told him, but it wouldn't be cheap. He was okay with that. The door to the club Bruce led me to had a no-nonsense and extremely pretentious black metal door with a single red number 9 painted near the handle. He knocked, and the door opened, revealing a huge bouncer. Evening, James. You know Miss Haley? Bruce said, gesturing towards me. James just nodded and stood aside, letting us in. The guts of the, p the place was like the inside of a huge creature, with a spine-like structure running down the length of the main room, complete with ribs that fanned out and down the convex walls of the place. To their right was a pitch-black, glossy bar, and to the left were blood-red lounge seats and booths filled with a sparse handful of people. The crowd was mostly younger women and older men, drinking and smoking and trying to look as rich and important as possible. One or two of them were sporting large targets on their heads, which turned in my direction as we walked towards the bar. I smiled shyly and averted my eyes the way celebrities always do when they're seen in public. It made me feel for a moment that I actually was her. It was kind of exciting. Bruce ordered a very expensive scotch for himself and a fruity concoction for me, which I took giddily like a girl who had never been allowed to drink before that very moment. We took our glasses to a secluded booth furthest from the door, and I sat down next to him, draping one smooth leg over his dark pant leg as I curled up with my drink. He smiled at me and clinked my glass, saying, Miss Haley, can I call you Winifred? <laughs> yes, I said immediately, surprised by my own earnestness. I was struck in that moment by something I didn't expect. In my line of work, I deal with creeps on the regular. I, it was just part of the landscape. There were the honest ones who wanted me to be their girlfriends or their wives, which I was happy to do, but then there were the ones that wanted me to be their sisters, or their stepkids, mm -hmm. or worse. Bruce was a primo creep, to be sure, but the way he looked at me just then said volumes. Perhaps... He really did feel something for that girl he had once led to stardom, immediately before tragedy struck. Maybe she was something special to him. And perhaps I was deluding myself a little, but it seemed to me that he looked right past my bleached hair and colored contacts and saw... Winifred. The moment passed. I took a large gulp from my glass and set it down a bit harder than I meant to, spilling a little of the pink liquid on the polished wooden tabletop. Bruce laughed and handed me a white handkerchief, which I used to wipe a bit of smudged lipstick from my face, then immediately buried it playfully in my cleavage. Don't make me go in after it, he said, <laughs> pulling me a little closer and taking a sip of scotch. Now, Mr. Quinn, that wouldn't exactly be appropriate, would it? 
I teased, sticking my chest towards him a little, daring him to take the handkerchief back. Perhaps I was playing it a little more drunkenly than I should have, considering the single drink I had taken, but I was having fun. Call me Bruce. And what's not appropriate? He asked seriously. You just turned 18, and now we are two co-workers enjoying a drink together after a long week of making movie magic. I smiled and emptied my glass, recalling my hasty research and confirming that, had Winifred Haley not vanished in the sudden departure, she would currently be celebrating her 18th birthday. It also reminded me of those fucking photos. Part of me hoped that the real Winifred Haley had allowed him to photograph her, but it wasn't much of a consolation, even if it were true. She had been a child then, after all, and she had wanted to be famous. What would a few compromising pictures be to someone like that? But why had Bruce called me and set up a date on this night? Was it the sign of a guilty conscience? Maybe he had waited until this moment to enact his fantasy so that it didn't feel so... predatorial. If the object of his desire was now a legal adult, he'd have nothing to feel ashamed of. To each his own, I thought, but still, those fucking photos... I made my decision. I need to make a phone call, I said hastily, setting down the empty glass and standing quickly. Bruce looked put off. What? Now? He was upset. I was breaking the illusion. I have to let my parents know I won't be coming home tonight. I winked at him, and I couldn't tell if he was satisfied or disturbed by the lie, but I slunk off to the bathrooms all the same. When I returned, a fresh drink was waiting for me at the table. That took a while, Bruce said, but I shrugged and laughed tipsily. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Quinn. I'm, I mean, Bruce. <laughs> I giggled. That drink just went straight to my head. I collapsed into the booth, being sure to make as much physical contact as possible. I wanted him to be distracted, after all. Careful now, Bruce said, placing a steadying hand on my shoulder. I reached for the new drink, this one green, and took the opportunity to note that Bruce would be able to see the front door of the club, which could potentially throw a wrench in things. I took a quick sip of the nasty beverage, set down the glass, then grabbed Bruce's cock through his pants. He looked surprised, and we stared at each other for a tense moment, before he stiffened and we began making out like horny teenagers. We dove into the deeper recesses of the booth and out of view of the door, pawing and slobbering at each other like two of Los Angeles' feral coyotes as I unbuttoned his pants. He was loving this. I, on the other hand, was just barely managing to suppress my disgust, while simultaneously getting kind of a sick high off of what was about to happen to him. I heard some angry voices from near the vicinity of the bar, and Bruce seemed to notice as well, but I unbuttoned my shirt and shoved his face in my tits before he had a chance to see what was going on. And that's how the cops found us. Me straddling Bruce, who was red-faced and panting, his hands on my breasts, while I gave him a sloppy handjob in the back booth of the club. The two officers asked me to step away and button my blouse, which I did, leaving Bruce scrambling to hide his shame while he shouted, What the fuck?! I pulled up the lewd photos of Winifred Haley on my phone, the ones that I had just sent to the cops 20 minutes earlier, and aimed the screen at Bruce, who goggled at them in confusion. I was 16, Bruce, I said in the smallest, most damaged voice I could muster, and you took advantage of me. His eyes widened and he gaped at me as the cops dragged him out of the booth and slapped cuffs on him. You're nothing like Winifred! 
he finally shouted as the cops led him towards the door. I actually laughed at this, a little diabolical, I know, but part of me knew that, wherever Winifred Haley really was, she would be laughing the same way. It felt good. It felt really, really good. Plus, Bruce paid me in advance, so that was awesome. Sharon woke early on the day she chose to die. She ate a simple breakfast, ignored the headlines in the paper, and went out to run as she had every morning for the past three years. She didn't bother with her headphones. They couldn't drown out the memory of Carter screaming her name. They would never be louder than the thumping of her heart as she ran through the guilt. No one made eye contact these days, which was just as well. Seeing someone was the first step to making a connection, and there was no point in that anymore. She got a few glares from those fuckers in white smoking their cigarettes as she ran down by the lake. (laughs) They didn't understand that anyone who had lost someone that October was never going to be able to move on. The world didn't need a cult of douchebags to remind them of what happened. At least they didn't talk. There was no joy when Sharon made it back to her apartment and noted she'd achieved a personal best. She would never be fast enough for it to matter. She had long since lost that opportunity. Her last ever shower was just the right amount of scalding. She had told herself that she wouldn't indulge on her final day on Earth, but it was easier to face her own demise than to take a cold shower. She hoped Carter would forgive her. She was ahead of schedule when she finished dressing. A black shirt and jeans would take her to the facility, but she didn't know what she would be wearing at the end. She locked the door when she left the apartment, pausing just long enough to realize how useless that habit became when one didn't plan on coming back. She didn't bother to leave a note. Most likely no one would care that she was gone, and the Blood Brothers would take care of any legal matters. The station she listened to in the car only played music from before the sudden departure. In the last three years, there had been maybe two songs she could tolerate, so why take the risk? Traffic was as unbearable as ever, but she didn't swear at anyone on the road for old time's sake. She was still early when she arrived at the building, but the valet didn't seem to mind. He took her keys and told Sharon to step inside for registration. She followed his instruction without realizing that by the time the door shut behind her, she had already taken her last breath of open air. The man at registration wore a plain blue shirt with the twin red bees of the Blood Brothers embroidered over the left breast. He smiled at her and asked her how her day was before handing her the donor forms. She froze when she saw that there was a place where she had to enter Carter's name. He had always hated writing things out by hand, causing a terrible fear of doctor's offices. Oddly enough, he had liked doctors. Finally, Sharon got the courage to proceed and handed the completed paperwork to the man at the desk. He offered her prayer material, but she declined and instead waited in silence for the priest. No one else came into the waiting room during the half hour that she sat there. The priest couldn't have been much older than Sharon, and she bowed her head when she entered the waiting room. She called Sharon by her family name and ushered her back into the facility. The music that played in the wood-paneled hallway was from after 2011, but that was forgivable as it was a hymn for a church that had been founded in the wake of the sudden departure. The priest, who called herself Sister Lila, quickly saw that Sharon wasn't much for small talk. Sharon wondered how many people this woman had walked to to their deaths. Did the priest really think it would make a difference? Did Sharon? They reached a small staging room at the end of the hallway. Sister Lila walked Sharon through the legal requirements on camera. Sharon was of sound mind, 
the Blood Brothers were not coercing her, and though the church shared data with the Department of the Sudden Departure, they were in no way part of the United States government. After the official consent was given, both orally and signed, Sister Lila asked Sharon the question she had been dreading. Why are you doing this? Sharon had been preparing her answer for weeks, but the words refused to come out. The story was hers, and it was the one thing she could cling to in her final moments. Besides, her story wasn't what they really wanted. Sharon managed to say, Carter, and apparently that was enough. Sister Lila asked Sharon to remove her clothes so that they could begin the ritual. There would be no gown or robes. They didn't want the fabric to soak up any of the blood. It was too valuable. Sharon did as she was asked. She had kept her story, and as long as she alone held her shame, nakedness would not faze her. Beyond the soft light and warm colors of the staging room was a sterile white space. There was a clear glass collection container beneath the metal apparatus with leather straps. Sharon had been told they couldn't give her anything to ease the pain or make her unconscious as it would contaminate the blood. Instead, she was strapped into the metal structure and four lines were inserted into her arms and legs. The worst pain she would experience was the initial pricks. The blood began to flow into the glass below her. Sister Lila stood before her, head bowed in prayer. Sharon didn't believe in the prayer, but maybe there was something to the harvesting. The blood of the sister of a departed might give a clue as to where Carter went, where they all went. Either way, she hoped to see him soon, to apologize, to let him know he was loved. As the life drained out of Sharon, her body began to shiver with the cold. The straps held her in place until she had no will to fight anymore. She thought of the warmth of a fire, and the memory rushed back to her. Carter's screaming that had never left her in the years since he was taken escalated from a dull throb to a full panic. She saw the flames off in the distance. The cabin was burning, and Sharon was running as hard as she could to save her brother. He was shouting her name over and over, pleading for help, pleading for a way to escape. She didn't know then what had started the fire, and she couldn't remember now what had been so important as to take her away from her brother. As she got closer to the cabin, she started yelling his name in reply, hoping against hope that he would hang on, knowing that she could save him. She ran as hard as she could until the screaming stopped, then she ran harder still. When she made it to the cabin, she kicked in the door, smoke filled her lungs, and she called out, Carter! Carter! There was no reply. She searched for him until she was badly burned and on the verge of passing out, her wheezes sounding nothing like his name. When she collapsed outside and drew out her phone with a charred hand, she found the police lines were all jammed. The world had gone to hell and her angel of a brother had left it. In three years since that day, it had never left her mind. Sharon could never know if she would have been able to save him. But if only she had been faster, Carter wouldn't have left this world thinking he was alone. In his last moments before the departure, he had been calling for her, fear and the world crashing in around him, and she hadn't been there to answer. No one knew if the departed had died or were taken somewhere else. Maybe Sharon's sacrifice would help solve that mystery. All she knew as her blood drained away her consciousness is that she would never stop running until she found him. From episode 30, Eric and Andrew write Ex Machina, based on the comics created by Brian K. Vaughn and Tony Harris. New York City Hall, 2002. 
There was a single sharp knock, the door opened, and Amy and Cotty stepped into the small basement room followed by a very stressed looking Dave Wiley and slightly bemused Candace Watts. Mitch sat up straighter in his chair and adjusted his hands in the uncomfortable metal cuffs. Convince me not to throw you to the wolves, she said sternly, hands on hips. Dave cut in with, Mitch, just deny everything. <laughs> but Amy slapped him right in the face to shut him up. Ow! <laughs> so, I take it you told those reporters I'm a horrible criminal, said Mitch casually, a light smile on his face despite his current predicament. No, actually, replied Amy. I heavily implied that they, these were probably false allegations. This caught Mitch by surprise. What? He started. Amy, you've wanted me out of City Hall since before the election. She nodded coolly at this and said, But you didn't replace me when you won. You gave me the benefit of the doubt, and now I'm returning the favor. So now you get to convince me. Did you take that money? Mitch hesitated. <laughs> Technically, yes, he said sheepishly. Amy swore to herself. And who was this Kremlin guy? Was? Mitch asked, his smile faltering. Does that mean... Amy nodded. He ran. They fired. That's what happens. <laughs> so it was true. Mitch's eyes watered for a moment, but he dropped his gaze to his handcuffs and said... He shouldn't have run. You shouldn't have involved him, Amy said with no hint of condolence. She was right, of course. So, who was he and why was he involved? Mitch looked at Dave and Candace, who were standing near the door, listening to their conversation. His instinct was to ask them to leave, thus reducing the number of people he let in. He needed to tell Amy the truth, since she had clearly taken a big risk by sticking her neck out for him. Plus, she had known him before he had traded in the super suit for a business suit. Candace and Dave, however, didn't know as much about that part of him. It made him nervous to get them involved now. He swallowed that fear and spoke to Amy. I have these dreams. Dreams? Designs. Machines that only I can use, but Kremlin was the one who built them. You're talking about the android. Mitch was surprised by this. You saw it? Amy nodded. Well, I've never thought of it as an android. What happened to it? He asked. Impounded. Should I be worried? Mitch thought for a beat, but then said, No. Amy stared at Mitch for a long moment, as if contemplating the truth of his statement. She then sat down in the chair next to Mitch and said, Can I assume this machine of yours was being paid for by stolen funds? I wouldn't call it stealing. Kremlin's Workshop, 1999. That's stupid. You're stupid. <laughs> Kremlin shouted from the other side of the grungy workbench. He flicked off the soldering iron and set it gingerly in its rest. The duffel bag lay between them, several wads of cash spilling out onto the ancient wood. Innumerable nuts, bolts, pieces of metal, and bits of wire littered the table, some of which had begun taking the rough shape of a human skull. It's not illegal. I don't even think there's a word for what I just did. There is, he responded flatly. Stealing. <laughs> Mitch signed and sat down on an oil-stained trunk, ignoring the fact that he was probably staining the seat of his nice new suit pants. It's yours, said Mitch in a dead tone. For the machine. 
and, and maybe hire a maid to clean up this place while you're at it. <laughs> Kremlin shook his head. Meech, you think by convincing a machine to give you money that it does not make you a thief? It does. He walked around to the other side of the table and began looking through the contents of the duffel bag, inspecting the bundles of cash before tossing them back in. This isn't like that time with the ATM, Mitch said defensively. How is this different? Uh, Because I didn't take the money. I earned it. I beat the system. Kremlin stuffed the loose bills back into the duffel and zipped it shut, picking it off the table and dropping it at Mitch's feet. No, I don't need it. I won't build it. Mitch stiffened and sat up straighter to compete with Kremlin's looming form. But what about my dreams? These designs came to me for a reason. No, Kremlin repeated, louder this time. I refuse to build this thing. These dreams you have with the schematics and the ideas, they serve you. They give you what you want. You want a way to stop being the great machine, so the dreams give you a way. This does not mean you must act. I refuse to help you in this. Kremlin, it's the only way. Kremlin shook his head. I have solution for you, he began as he turned towards the door. Just be the great machine again. With that, Kremlin left the room. New York City Hall, 2002. Go on, Amy said. Mitch took another look at Candace and Dave before plowing ahead. Well, you know that machines talk to me, right? Then he lifted the cuffs to his face and told them to unlock. They obeyed his command, and the the metal handcuffs suddenly sprang open and fell limply onto the cement floor with a clatter. He rubbed his sore wrists and stood from the uncomfortable chair. Amy raised an eyebrow at this. Mitch went on. And I was on Wall Street a couple years ago when all of a sudden I, I heard these voices. You heard voices. I'm supposed to be reassured? She asked cattily. Mitch ignored her. It was then that I realized that I was hearing the stock exchange, the the market itself, all the computers and networks and buzz of electronic trading that was all happening in the air around me and below my feet, and it was as if they suddenly had a voice. Uh, The market was talking to me, Amy. You're a crazy person. I'm going to go tell the reporters (laughs) you're going to jail. She stood up to go. Hear me out, said Mitch frantically. The stock market is a machine, a vastly complex system of of buy and sell, yes and no, on and off. And if I listened close enough, I could use it to know exactly when to buy and when to sell. Hold on, shouted Candace from near the door. Everyone turned to her. You're telling me that you inside traded with the stock market itself? As if it were a person? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Mitch shrugged. That's not a crime! Candace laughed. I don't even think there's a name for that! That's what I said, Mitch mused. (laughs) Amy coughed, bringing all attention back to her. She had a way of doing that. All right, so maybe what you did isn't exactly a known crime, but I think we can all agree that it wasn't a morally sound thing to do. Everyone nodded. Agreed, said Mitch. But this was right about the time I started seeing this android in my sleep. A machine that can do everything I used to do. You know, in my old job, I called him (laughs) Robo-Mitch. Everyone stared at him for a few seconds. Amy broke the silence. So that brings us to this Kremlin guy. 
you gave him a ton of ill-acquired money to build a robo-you or whatever. Weird, by the way. I looked into this guy, you know. <laughs> Russian immigrant. Sketchy criminal record. On the FBI watch list for a while in the late 90s. And now he's dead. Because of me, said Mitch, Mitch morosely. Because he ran, Mitch, said Amy. And if he ran, then he must have felt he was doing something wrong. This could work in our favor. Mitch started at this. What are you talking about? The way I see it, you have a choice, Mr. Mayor. She put both hands palm up in front of her as if presenting the options. One, you admit to your sort of crimes and get tried and probably impeached for being a shady scumbag. <laughs> Candace laughed at this from the corner. Or two, we blame it all on this unknown Russian who ran from the cops when he was cornered and who's now too dead to refute anything we say. Dave piped up at this. That. We should definitely go with option two. <laughs> Candace nodded and spoke up as well. I know it seems dishonest, but I have to agree with Dave on this one, Mitch. Amy also nodded. It would certainly save this administration a lot of grief. Mitch looked around at all three of them, noticing how relieved they all seemed to realize that there was an easy way out. He thought about this. No, what he did certainly wouldn't count as the worst crime ever committed by a New York City mayor, but the trials and the public outcry would effectively cripple him for the remainder of his term. And Kremlin was definitely an easy scapegoat. They could pass him off as a wannabe supervillain and sweep the whole thing under the rug. But this didn't sit right with Mitch. Kremlin had been his friend for so long, and now, thanks to Mitch's actions, he was dead. Everyone in the room waited for him to say something. Amy said, What will it be, Mitch? Your advisors seem to think that you should choose option two. A long moment passed. Finally, Mitch said, no. Kremlin was my friend. We tell the truth. Everyone groaned. And then the door to the cramped room opened and a skeletal metallic form stepped into the room. <laughs> Robo Mitch? <laughs> 7.55am. Mayor's office. <laughs> Mitch was looking out a window through the trees at the park below. The morning sunlight shone through the swaying branches outside, which cast shifting, irregular beams into the room. After a slight turn of his head, Mitch caught a green glint on the glass before him. He turned to look at it, but it disappeared. After a moment's thought, he slowly turned his head back until the glint returned. He touched his cheek and felt the cool, familiar pattern of the circuitry there. As his hand covered it, the glint in the window vanished again. In its place he saw the reflection of his desk, covered in open newspaper issues from the last few days. He had just finished reading through the articles about the problem in Queens. When things like this were happening, the song usually started. This time was no different. <laughs> he had dreamt last night, and now the song was in his head. He sighed and listened to the tune. Then he lifted his mug to take a drink. 8.15 a.m., Deputy Mayor's Office. The coffee maker in the break room isn't working. What? Dave asked absently. The coffee maker in the break room isn't working, Journal repeated. Dave looked up at her with bleary eyes that hadn't strained from his computer monitor in over an hour. What are you talking about? He replied. I have some right here. 
He lifted his iHeartNY mug and took a drink, immediately <laughs> regretting it. Yeah, she began. That's definitely a day or two old. Dave pulled the wastebasket <laughs> below his desk and spit the cold, gritty coffee into it. Margaret! He shouted out the door, where Journal leaned against the frame. His secretary appeared a moment later. Yes? You didn't replace my coffee this morning? The coffee maker in the break room isn't. There are other coffee makers in other break rooms, he said. Go downstairs. Margaret furrowed her brow and glared at him. He sighed and added, Please? She walked up to his desk, took the mug from his hand, and marched out of the office. Journal watched her go. What you doing here, Journal? Dave asked. He noted the to-go coffee cup in her hand before turning back to his computer. I have an 8.30 downstairs with the Youth Services Committee, she replied, walking into his office. Great, he said. Why are you in my office? To bother you, she said with a smile. Great. <laughs> What's going on? She asked as she absently strolled into the room. Well, Dave began, I am currently half-reading an email from a Parks Department employee who annoys me almost as much as you, but that's just a distraction from a message I received this morning about the Tallman problem. Tallman problem? Yeah, the Tallman wastewater treatment plant. Where's that? College Point. Where's that? Queens. What's going on there? <laughs> oh, you know, just some apocalypse-level shit. Real Book of Revelations, career and administration ruining kind of stuff. Journal paused from her strolling to look at him. Should I be hearing about this? Sure, Dave said. It's been in the paper. There's a problem with the treatment system. Some of the equipment isn't functioning properly. The DEP sent engineers down to fix it four days ago, and they still haven't figured it out. Okay... Journal inserted with a rising inflection, encouraging him to proceed. <sighs> Projections from the last few days have said the plant wouldn't reach incident level until Sunday, but the message I received this morning said they miscalculated. Dave exhaled before continuing. Now they're saying tomorrow at 8 p.m. Tomorrow at 8, Journal repeated. That's less than 36 hours from now, Dave finished. So what would happen if... Journal trailed off as if saying it out loud would make it happen. Dave leaned back in his chair. Wastewater and sewage would start backing up into the College Point water supply, poisoning the drinking water of 20,000 working-class people, and 8 million gallons of untreated water would begin spilling out into the East River. Whoa, a day. Dave finished. <laughs> Journal's eyes grew wide. She took a seat across from him. A moment passed before she spoke again. Does the mayor know? Yes. What are you going to do? What do you think we should do? He asked her. She perked up a bit at this, but hesitated. I don't think Candace would, she began. What do you think, Journal? Dave stressed. She smirked awkwardly and shrugged. Let hundred be hundred. <laughs> 12.45 p.m. Outside the executive offices. Candace noted how comfortable her feet were as she climbed the last few marble stairs onto the second floor landing. On the car ride back from lunch, she had changed out of her work heels into her New Balance sneakers. She'd been doing this sort of thing for a while now, but she was nonetheless pleased with how much better her feet felt since she'd started. Also, without heels, her steps didn't echo in City Hall's rotunda and wide corridors. She had been told many times before that she had a distinct walk that people could hear coming, and she didn't like that so much. Still, despite her silent steps, she saw Dave waiting for her at the entrance to the West Wing corridor. "'Hey, can I walk with you?' he asked. "'Sure,' she began without stopping, "'but I have a one o'clock with a representative from the Bureau of Wastewater Treatment.' I know, he said, falling in beside her. That's what I want to talk about. Okay, let's talk in my off, Dave cut her off. I think we should send the mayor to Tallman. Or Candace felt her jaw clench. She looked around. 
The hall was sparsely populated. Most were still at lunch. Let's talk in my office, she said. I think it's appropriate, given the situation, Dave continued, ignoring her comment. No, she replied with a tinge of anger. She picked up her pace so they'd reach her office sooner. Candace, we... No. When I started, you told me that you wanted to go straight. And now, six months in, you're already wanting to break that. Six months in, our approval rating is evaporating, and it's going to be gone if this goes cataclysmic. The people elected him what is, The people elected him because of what he can do. No, they elected him because he's a hero. What's the... There's a difference. He has a mm. hero's values. Our goal is to apply those values to this administration's policy and act in a way that reflects it. That's what you wanted. That's going straight. But this isn't a political issue. He's the mayor, Dave. Every move he makes is a political move. His bowel movements are political. <laughs> she regretted it as she said it. Dave seemed to notice. Probably not the best joke to make right now. I know. The point is, <laughs> let the DEP handle it. The same DEP that's under probation for violating the Federal Water Pollution Control Act and... Dave, and the Toxic Substance Control Act? I'm not convinced. They need help. They have some of the most qualified engineers in the country down there right now, and they could use some help. She stopped right outside the door to her office and turned to face him. Where does it stop? She asked. Where does what stop? He answered. She took a deep breath. Dave tensed, bracing for what she was about to say. We do not have standards for this. You could have established some at the onset, but instead you chose abstinence. You told this government, no, this city, that the mayor's powers would not interfere with this administration's activity, but that his values would influence it. If he uses his powers to assist at Tallman, there is nothing to stop every other agency in this government, DOB, DOT, NYPD, from requesting his aid. As chief of staff, I do not want to call to this office every time a toilet backs up around here. That's not our job. Dave relaxed at her last statement. A little smirk appeared on his lips. Okay, he said. <laughs> she frowned. That's it? That's all you have to say? <laughs> no, you're right, he continued. That's not our job. Then he let a deliberately dramatic pause linger before saying, Our job is to serve at the pleasure of the mayor. <laughs> Candace's gut tightened. She knew what he meant by this, and she was confirmed as he turned around and quickly began to walk toward the mayor's office next door. She groaned and called after him. Dave! He didn't stop, so she followed and met him at the open door where he dressed Peggy, the mayor's secretary. Hey, Peggy, is he in? No, he stepped out, she replied. Where to? 12.55 p.m., executive break room. All of that needs replacing? Mitch asked. Yes, I'm afraid. Heating coil, heat sensor, power cable, he listed. Yes, and will you be able to replace them? Oh, sure, Mitch assured. It'll take Lloyd a few days to get the parts from Bun, but you'll get them. You'll be okay. Thank you. Of course, Mitch said. You do a great job. You make a mean cup of joe. He rested a comforting hand on the machine and turned to Lloyd for maintenance. Got it? Yes, sir, Lloyd replied, replacing his notepad and pen in his front pocket. Might want to get the grease, too. Oh, yeah, Mitch agreed. Pick up some of that uh, white heat conductive grease. It would, it would rather not melt again for a while. Sure thing, sir. Lloyd confirmed as he exited past Dave and Candace, who now stood in the doorway. They took Mitch a bit by surprise. How long have you two been there? He asked. Just a minute, Dave replied. Mitch noted his friend's eyes. They seemed brighter than they'd been all week, and a pleased smile light below them. Mr. Mayor, Candace began. She was smiling, too, but she seemed a bit more stiff, more hesitant. 
we'd like to discuss Tallman. He caught her eyes glance over to his hand, which still rested on the machine. He looked at it a moment, noting the tune that continued to play in his head. Then he turned back to his staff and nodded. Good. I'm ready. From episode 31, Eric writes The West Wing, based on the television series created by Aaron Sorkin. If anyone asks, just tell them that it's all been blown out of proportion, Josh Lyman said with a hint of queasiness in his voice, as he and Donna marched out of McGarry's corner office and made a beeline down the hall. Is that the official stance? She asked from his left, keeping pace with the frantic staccato rhythm of her hard-soled shoes. We don't have an official stance yet, he replied with a grimace, but it's all over the the news and these vultures want to tear us apart. We're not dead yet, offered Donna. What? Scavengers. Vultures are scavengers. They'd only be tearing us apart if we were dead. Or dying, he agreed. Ahead, Sam Seaborn rounded the corner and nearly ran into them outside of the Oval Office. He was holding some papers and looked as if he'd been running all morning. Josh, he began as he stopped in his tracks. Sam, I'm just heading to see your boss. Is Toby in his office? He is. Seaborn breathed as he changed directions and fell in step beside Lyman, handing him a piece of White House stationery. But he sent me to find you. We need an official statement from the president regarding this incident with McGarry. Yeah, you and 97 other people this morning, Lyman moaned as he skimmed the document. DC police already made a statement and there's not much else we can say. People are going to want to know if McGarry is getting canned over this, Sam pleaded. You've got to give me something. The president isn't going to say a thing until he talks to Leo, replied Lyman, handing the paper back. Donna chimed in with, I'm sure it's all just been blown out of proportion. Exactly, (laughs) smiled Lyman. Can we stall the press? Briefing room is already packed, Seaborn complained. Well, they can wait until after Bartlett talks to Leo. Donna, run back to the lobby and let me know as soon as he gets here. Yeah, okay, she quipped, then took a left through a door that led past the Roosevelt room and into the lobby. You know this isn't good, Seaborn said as they neared Ziegler's office at the end of the hall. The president's approval rating is hovering at 28%, and a scandal like this could completely discredit him. 9.2% of men in this country are diagnosed alcoholics, you know. This sort of thing happens. It doesn't happen in this administration, Josh. We need to defuse it. He punched a guy in the face, Sam. Everyone knows Leo is a firecracker. That's why he's good at his job. So can't we just use this to confirm that the president's right-hand man is someone to be reckoned with? We We should send a strong message. That's all well and good but only if McGarry's not getting canned. They arrived at the office at the end of the hall to find Ziegler and CJ hovering over a computer screen, making frantic changes to the official White House statement. Tell me you brought us something from Bartlett, CJ shouted as soon as they stepped through the door. They could hear the clamor of a hundred impatient voices talking at once from the nearby press briefing room. He hasn't said anything yet, said Lyman, and he won't till he talks to Leo. Oh, for Christ's sake! She replied as she stormed past them and into the hallway. I'll do it myself. CJ, Lyman shouted after her as he and Seaborn began to chase her down. Sam, came the voice of Ziegler from behind, who had also followed them into the hall. Go to the briefing room and let them know it'll be a few more minutes. Yeah, okay, he said as he turned back around and power walked past Ziegler's office. We have to say something, Josh said Ziegler. The White House chief of staff got drunk and assaulted a guy. Yeah, we should say something, but not until the president talks to Leo, he pleaded with them as they approached the Oval Office. Donna's voice rang from behind them. Josh, McGarry's in the building. They all stopped and turned to see her running down the hall towards them. Yeah, okay, said Josh, (laughs) 
<laughs> Can I help you folks? Came a voice from the direction that they had been heading. They all turned again to see President Bartlett sta- leading Leo McGarry, who was now sporting a fresh black eye, into the Oval Office. McGarry looked angry and ashamed, his hands in his pockets. He said nothing to his staff, which was unnerving for all of them. CJ was the first one on it. Mr. President, we need an official statement for the press. Bartlett glanced back at McGarry, then to CJ and the rest of them. Tell them to go find some real news. (laughs) He then followed McGarry into the office and shut the door. The Oval Office was empty, save for the President's aide, Charlie Young, who had entered the room from the side door as soon as the door had slammed shut. Can you give us a few moments, Charlie? He said kindly. The young man nodded, then left them alone. The president sat down on the cream-colored couch at the center of the office and crossed his legs. Why don't you sit down, Leo? He offered amiably, gesturing to the chair across from him. Mr. President, McGarry said, not taking the seat. I must tender my resignation, sir. The president nodded to himself for a moment, then said, Why don't you sit down? McGarry glanced at the chair, then back to Bartlett, then sat down. He repeated, I have to resign. You're sure? Bartlett asked casually, as if they were discussing discussing something as innocuous as what he had decided to eat for lunch. Yes, Mr. President. Bartlett seemed to consider this, then he uncrossed his legs and leaned forward in his seat, resting his elbows on his knees. You know, this reminds me of a story. (laughs) McGarry suddenly stood and said, Sir, I don't want to waste your time. I'm sorry for for the trouble I've caused... But Bartlett just waved his hand and shook his head, indicating that he should retake his seat. McGarry hesitated, but sat once again. Back in New Hampshire, the president began, we had this young assistant professor at the university by the name of Harry Sherman, taught the 100-level biology classes, very friendly, knew everybody, amazingly intelligent, all that. Well, after he had been teaching for about nine months, we started noticing some things had gone missing around campus. Nothing big, some microscopes and the like from the science building, and a couple of very old books from the library. A few personal items also took flight, as it were. Uh, Specifically, an old wristwatch of my father's had been taken from the front seat of my car. I never used to lock it back then. Well, of course, losing the watch was a grievous offense to me, but and I, like many of the professors at the university, demanded something be done. The culprit must be found! And then the police tracked down those antique books and found out that they were sold to a bookstore in Durham by none other than our good friend Harry. He was confronted, and it came out that he had stolen everything, including my father's watch. I felt betrayed. Here was a bright young man with a great career ahead of him, whom I had spoken to almost every day for the past nine months, and he had stolen from me. How could such a man turn out to be a criminal? And the worst part of it all was that the president of the university at the time, Hal Steinbeck, refused to press charges. I I was outraged. I marched into Hal's office and gave him a piece of my mind. I told him that Harry should be dismissed immediately and that anything less than jail time would be insufficient punishment. Well, Hal listened patiently to my tirade, reached into his desk drawer, and pulled out my father's watch. I was stunned. I I thought I'd never see it again. He hands it to me, and he tells me that I'm... And and he he hands it to me, and he tells me something that I'm never going to forget. He says, Jed, let's not go turning on each other just yet. 
He then goes on to tell me that Harry had returned everything and that he had been diagnosed with this thing called kleptomania, compulsive disorder that made him steal. Uh, I actually laughed at this. Theft is theft, I told him. (laughs) But Hal didn't agree. You know what he did? He told Harry that if he wanted to keep his job, he'd have to find treatment, therapy, drugs, whatever he could do to get this problem under control. And he was absolutely right. Things stopped disappearing, and Harry kept teaching and going to therapy twice a week. Anytime the compulsion got the better of him and he took something, he'd bring it back the next day. I learned something then, Leo. Punishment is in the mind. Harry was a smart young man, so when he was caught and given a second chance, I think he felt appropriately ashamed and perhaps a bit more determined to do better. Would losing his job and spending a few weeks in jail have taught him that? I really doubt it. But we, as a people, were programmed to equate crimes with justice, isn't that right? Isn't that why you're here, Leo? You committed a crime, and you think you know the appropriate punishment, right? (laughs) McGarry stared at the big oval rug at the center of the room for a moment, before meeting Bartlett's penetrating gaze. No offense, Mr. President, but it's a matter of degrees. Theft is one thing. Assault is entirely different. You didn't kill anyone, Leo. You punched a guy in the face. And from everything I've heard about that page, he probably deserved it. I'm more concerned with the problem behind the punch, to, com- to be completely honest with you. McGarry looked away at that and said, You're going to suggest therapy? AA meetings? Bartlett nodded. You don't think that's going to discredit you and your administration, having a violent alcoholic as your chief of staff? The damage has already been done, Leo, the president replied, rising to his feet. Let's not go turning on each other just yet. The president opened the door to find Lyman, CJ, Ziegler, and Seaborn, Donna, and Charlie all crowded together in the hallway. They froze, (laughs) making guilty eye contact with Bartlett as if they had all been caught with their hands in the cookie jar. He looked around at all of them for a moment, then smiled and stepped aside, letting McGarry through. Everyone backed up a step, making room for the man in the crowded hallway. Then McGarry broke the silence. What the hell are you all gawking at? Get back to work! And with that, they all scattered. From episode 32, Andrew writes A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, based on the book by George R.R. Martin. You could use a woman, couldn't you, Dunk? Dunk looked up from the fatty cut of pork on his plate to the boy across the table. The face of the little scoundrel bore an impish grin. Dunk sighed and finished cutting himself a piece of meat. Call me Sir Egg. And of of what use could a woman be to me at the moment? He asked as he took a bite. In addition to being fatty, the the meat was overcooked and dry, making it difficult to chew. Even so, Dunk didn't wish to complain. He was thankful enough to have a meal provided to him, rather than having to hunt for it. It's what knights do, Dunk, Egg replied, (laughs) ignoring his request. After a successful day's battle, there's nothing better than a cut of meat, a glass of wine, and a woman. (laughs) Dunk smiled a bit, despite still having to chew. And and where did you learn this? He asked with a full mouth. The guards at Summerhall, Egg responded. I'd often lunch with them during their midday rest. Their crude discussions were way more compelling than my family's prattle. Hmm. Dunk began. He finally swallowed his bite, realizing it probably could have used a few more chews. 
He took a swig of wine and continued. I have meat and wine. That's enough for tonight. <laughs> Seven hells, Egg cursed. You're such a bore. Watch your speech, boy. You won both bouts today, Dunk, Egg protested. You should celebrate. The boy was right about the first part. The opening day of the Lannisport tournament had gone in Dunk's favor. Call me sir, Dunk repeated, and the tourney <laughs> isn't over. We must be at the ground shortly after first light to prepare for my tilt with Heinrich Craycall. Before then, we rest. Egg groaned and tossed his fork on his plate with a clatter. I simply won't let you be so uninteresting, he said, rising from the table. Where are you going? Dunk asked in a stern voice. His squire's disobedient behavior always riled him. Then again, he recalled, <laughs> Egg isn't rightly your squire. Hmm? To make this celebration complete, the boy answered. What? To find you a woman, you lunk. <laughs> Dunk's grip tightened on his fork and his face grew hot. Boy, you are a test of the seven. Sit down. <laughs> I'll return shortly. Egg turned and walked away into the crowd of the busy tavern. I'll clout you on! Ugh. Dunk cut himself off. He didn't want to look foolish in front of the people around him, who might recognize him as a knight from the tournament. He forcefully cut himself off another piece of pork and shoved it into his mouth. The chewing helped him work off a bit of his anger, but it also made his jaw sore, which flared up, a, which flared up the pain in his right side. He may have won his bouts, but he hadn't escaped the day completely unscathed. Sir Uric Payne had seen to that before falling to the dirt. I need to rest, Dunk, Dunk thought. He then remembered the soft bed awaiting him upstairs and smiled. He swallowed the sufficiently chewed piece and proceeded to cut another. A few moments and bites of meat later, he heard Egg call his name. Oh, Sir Duncan! The boy's voice came from behind. <laughs> Dunk turned, and what he saw causes, caused his gut to clench. Egg was making his way through the crowd, leading a woman by the hand. The men they brushed past turned to ogle her, for she was tall, Dunk reckoned about six feet, and full of figure. The dress she wore fit tight around the middle, accentuating her substantial curves. In addition to her striking shape, her head was topped with a cascade of wavy hair of a deep shade of red. Egg directed her to the place beside Dunk. She sat on the bench, with her back to the table, and rested her elbows on its surface. As Dunk felt her arm and hip touch his, his whole body tensed. She smirked at his reaction. You're right, Master Egg, she said. This one's a bit stiff. <laughs> Dunk was doing his best to keep his gaze on the woman's face and no lower. He noted her blue eyes and round freckled cheeks. Sir Duncan, Egg began as he returned to his seat. This is Lara. Pleasure, Lara said, running a finger down Dunk's shoulder. His face grew hot again, but not from anger. The woman chuckled. Lara wished to meet a knight from the tournament. Egg explained. Master Egg tells me you ride for House Yarwick, Lara said. Where's that family sit? They, they, uh... Dunk began, but his mouth was as dry as a Dornish afternoon. He couldn't seem to form any more words, so Egg cut in. East, he said. Lara turned to the boy. This is Lannisport, my lord. Every place is east. I suppose, <laughs> Egg replied. House Yarwick occupies a keep east of Silverhall on the Gold Road. Lara smiled. You wouldn't be lying to me now, Lara asked, turning back to Dunk. Me, milady? Egg replied. Perhaps, but not Sir Duncan. He's a good man, and a good fighter. Glad to hear it, she said, looking Dunk up and down. 
Ready to go up, then, my good lord? <laughs> what? Dunk thought. <laughs> of course. His temper flared as he turned to Egg. Don't worry, sir, the boy assur- assured him with a smirk. I'll be fine until you get back. The boy's fiendishness was enough to bring Dunk's voice back. I didn't ask you to do this, he seethed. A good squire shouldn't have to be asked, Egg replied. (laughs) He acts in anticipation of the night he serves. So you said. Wise words, my lord, Lara added, which caught Dunk's attention. He turned to her and took a much-needed breath before speaking. Apologies, my lady. My squire was mistaken. I do not require your uh, services. What I need is rest. Lara raised a brow at this. I'm afraid you're mistaken, sir. If you believe my fee is refundable. She rested a hand on his thigh as she spoke. (laughs) Dunk felt his manhood swell at her touch. (laughs) This woman is a test of the seven, he thought. (laughs) My lady, please, he urged. The boy and I need the money to feed ourselves. We cannot hunt here in the city. Neither can I. Lara replied, her voice growing soft, her hands moving slowly up his leg. What do you expect me to do without pay? Uh, Find another... Dunk's voice trailed off as her hand found his manhood through his trousers. I don't want another, she said, leaning closer. Warmth overcame him. I need... I need rest, he said quietly, her beautiful face all he could see. I can grant you that. (laughs) Then her lips met his. (laughs) They had left the table, pushed through the crowd, climbed the stairs, shut the door, and fallen into bed before Dunk regained his wits. He probably wouldn't have, had it not been for Sir Uric Payne's unsuccessful, but nonetheless solid, strike on the tourney grounds earlier that day. Ugh! Dunk cried as Lara fell atop him. What? Lara shouted, pushing herself up. Dunk grasped his right side under his arm. Ugh! He groaned. I was hit today. Oh, no, she said with a softened voice. (laughs) We'll have to be more careful. She leaned in and began to kiss him. Dunk felt her delicately working on the laces of his trousers, her movements grazing his manhood. It was a pleasant (laughs) feeling, but his side continued to sear. They couldn't do this with her on top. I can't, he trailed off. What's that? she asked. I can't. You can't what? she urged pushing away from him again and stopping her work on the trouser laces. That's when he saw it. A coin between her breasts. The money Egg had paid her. Seeing it somehow... Seeing it seemed to further intensify the pain in his side. He looked at her face. Nothing had changed about it, but somehow looking at her now wasn't the same. Then he heard his own words in his head. A test of the seven. (laughs) I can't do this, he said. Of course you can, she replied. Just relax. She began to lean in, but he placed a hand on her shoulder. No, he urged. I I, I can't. Why not? She asked. She tried to lean in again, but he turned his head away and pushed on her shoulder. The slight force shook the coin loose from her breasts. The silver stag fell onto Dunk's chest, and his body tensed. Lara looked from the coin to Dunk. She picked it up and gestured at him with it. Because of this? She asked. Dunk didn't reply. He felt a wrenching in his stomach. He closed his eyes tightly and wished for this moment to be over. Then Lara spoke. Fuck you, 
she seethed, climbing off him in the bed. Dunk opened his eyes as he felt her touch leave him, the pain in his side still seared. He watched as she stomped toward the door. She placed a hand on the knob, but stopped, turning back to him, face face flushed. Just leave, he thought. Please. You're a two-faced fuck, you know that? She hissed. Hedge knight. You think you're better than me because I'm paid to fuck and you're paid to fight? She spat on the floor. Whore knight is more like. She left with a slam of the door. Dunk stared at the closed door for a few minutes before turning away onto his uninjured side. The movement sent more pain through him, and he felt tears in his eyes. The wrenching in his stomach persisted. He didn't know how long he'd been lying there before he heard Egg's voice behind him. He didn't catch the first thing the boy said upon entering. What's that? Dunk asked without turning. I said, where's Lara? She left, Dunk replied. Where'd she go? The boy pressed. Dunk placed a hand on his side, which sent another bolt of pain through him. Wherever whores go, (laughs) he said before he could stop himself. He regretted it immediately. He closed his eyes and thought of the woman's last words. Dunk wanted nothing more than to rest that night. But rest never came. From episode 33, Marcus writes Brick, based on the film written and directed by Ryan Johnson. It's Kara at the door. A week ago, a pair of legs like that would have had me in trouble faster than Jay the Bruiser rushing the quarterback on Friday night. Today, they barely register. Without Emma around to get jealous, I don't much see the point of dames. I tell her to come in and she slinks on into my office. You've been causing quite a stir, Fry. That's supposed to be funny? You tell me, she says. She grabs a chair and spins it around to sit on in a way that almost makes me reconsider my policy on dames. I do my best not to notice the skirt she's wearing. She's tugging on her long, blonde hair. I take it you got my message. It was a little vague. She reaches into her top and out comes a crumpled sheet of paper with my handwriting on it. Just four words in a signature. Brick. Tug. Frisco. Pin. I scan her eyes as she reads each word aloud. Nothing. Of course, the drama kids are always hard to read. Don't act dumb, I say, playing a hunch. I know about your call with M. Her eyes flash before her lips can lie. I hadn't heard from Emily in weeks. Word in the halls is you were the last person to see her alive. She drops the note as her hands go back to her hair. I haven't seen her do that before. She's playing dumb. She's acting like a real lug. (laughs) And who's been spreading that word? I ask. Information like that doesn't come free, she says. A girl's got to... Let's get down to brass tacks here. I cut her off. I know Dode got into trouble sneaking into the teacher's lounge. He's looking at a one-way trip to a GED if no one intervenes. But it just so happens that Mr. Claremont owes me a favor. You tell me about him, and your boyfriend gets to stick around for his third senior year. (laughs) The smile drops, but so do the lies, replaced by a bit of panic. This isn't something you want to get messed up in, Brendan. M's gone. Just leave it at that. She's not gone, doll. She's dead. Murdered and tossed in a drainage ditch. If she called you, I need to know why. If I tell you, they'll kill me, Kara says. Her melodramatic words are partnered with a better swell of tears than I've ever seen her with on stage. She makes it out the door before I can clear the room to stop her. As I stick my head out in the hall, she's already gone in the sea of people past first period. Brick. Tug. 
Frisco Pin. I think of the bits of conversation I heard from M before she died. She knew it was coming, and this is what she chose to tell me? She had never been the I love you type, but still. Pin and Tug had been easy. The Pin was a boss, and Tug was his muscle. The classic brains and bronze combo. Everyone knew their reps, even if they didn't know the mugs attached to them. Hmm. Those fellows were bad news, but they ran a civilized racket. They only killed when they had exhausted the more profitable alternatives. My girl would have been worth a lot more to them alive than dead. Frisco had taken me some time. Turns out Francisco Hernandez was the subject of M's last history project. The court physician to the King of Spain back in 15, who cares? <laughs> Brian had found M's locker combo in the school registry, and I saw she had called Hernandez Frisco in her shorthand. She had been checking out books about him in the library. I forced my way through some of them, and it was almost enough to make me think she could have offed herself. Brick was, well, everywhere. School had a brick facade, and there were scattered bricks all around the ditch where I found M. There wasn't much to go off of. I was hoping that Carrick could give me some information. I'd been avoiding a visit to the pen until it was absolutely necessary. I always walked away from my meetings with him, owing more than I got. And Tug had given me a few bruises in the past as well. But if Kara wasn't talking, there was only one option. I make my way back across the room to grab my coat and pick up the paper Kara had dropped on the ground before she left. That's when I noticed something. Next to my note, she'd made her own inscription. Cocaine. The little letters barely uh-huh. visible under the word brick. That settles it. The pin owns half the drug trade in the school and all of the hard stuff. It's time for me to pay him a visit. The smell hits me before I find the bodies. The pin and tug don't look so intimidating when they've got a pair of holes in them to match my dearly departed M. (gasps) The old storage shed on the edge of campus that the gentlemen had been using as their base of operations had plenty of compartments to hide things in they didn't want the teachers to see. I bet in all their time here they never thought they'd be hiding their own dead bodies. (laughs) I leaned close to get a better look at the pair. There had been something off about the bullet hole in the back of M's neck but she'd been too waterlogged for me to get a good read on it before the teacher showed up. The pin and Tug have the same tiny entry wounds. I grab Tug's massive shoulders to bring him closer. Then I feel sharp crack on the back of my head and my lights go out. Hmm. Two things surprise me when I wake up. The first is that I wake up at all. The people responsible for M, the pin, and Tug dying clearly don't have a problem with murder. The second is that I'm back in my office. The reason why it doesn't take me long to fi- figure out It's been scattered with M's things. Stuff that wasn't in her locker or on her body when I found her. Someone's trying to frame me. I find my glasses, and as the room comes back into focus, so do M's last messages to me. It all starts to make sense. Brick, tug, frisco, pin. And the call to Kara. (laughs) Here I thought Kara wasn't being helpful, but it was so obvious. Her best performance to date. If I make it out of this alive, I might just have to kiss her. (laughs) I take the steps two at a time down to the shop room, knowing the teachers will catch up with me any minute. In my haste, I realize I forgot my piece. Hopefully I'll be able to come up with something. (sighs) I don't bother with subtleties. I kick in the shop room door, and sure enough, there he is. Chuck Burns, the long-haired lug. (laughs) Bent over a circular saw. Carving up a two-by-four, a massive pile of sawdust on the shop floor. He shuts off the saw at the sound of my entrance and immediately pulls on his long hair sweeping it behind his shoulders. In the rush of it all, I actually laugh, remembering how good Kara's impression of this had been. 
Hello, Fry, Chuck says. He fingers the nail gun on his tool belt, and I try not to think of what it would feel like in my spine. I trace the line running from the gun to a nearby compressed air tank. You killed M, I say, scanning the room for the rest of the woodworkers. But I don't see any. Then I remember it's third period and most of the lugs have P.E. She found out about my operation, and she threatened to take it to the pen. You are cutting his supply with sawdust. Not a very smart move. <gasps> I inch my way closer. If I can get that line free, I might have a chance. Oh, to the contrary. I got to sell twice as much product, and half of it was out dealing the pen a cut. And your precious Emily chose the wrong topic in history class. Frisco. Did you know that no one had ever checked out the original Latin volumes of Spanish medicine from the 16th century? They had been the perfect drop point until one of my bags went missing. I checked the registry and saw little Emily had taken an interest in Hernandez. Wasn't long after that, my nail gun took an interest in the back of her neck. Shame. She was pretty hot. Now or never, I dive forward and hear the rush of nails flying over my head. With a roll, I grab the airline and pull hard. The tube comes free with a hiss of compressed air, but my victory is short-lived. As I reach up to adjust my glasses, the lug grabs me by the shoulders and pulls me to my feet. My stomach falls as I realize the circular saw is still on. (laughs) I really didn't want to kill you, Fry, Chuck says as he drags me over to the workbench. You would have been the perfect scapegoat. The little detective snapped and killed his girlfriend and her dealer. She called out for you when she knew she was going to die. Did you know that? I told her we could have a talk. But she saw the tank strapped to my back, the gun at my hip. She called out your name, and you weren't there for her. You will be soon, and Kara will take your place as my fall girl. Chuck slams my face onto the bench and begins to drag me towards the spinning blade. I struggle, forcing him to hold me with both hands. The buzzing grows louder and louder as the whirring gets nearer. I think of M and how she'll never be avenged. I think of the pin and tug and the woodworkers, the woodworkers who will replace them. I think of Kara. Another woman I've... Kara, that beautiful, long-legged, long-haired thespian. In an effort to restrain me, Chuck had forgotten to pull his hair back. I have one chance and I take it. I let go of Chuck's arms and instead of trying to push myself up and break free, I reach down, grab onto the table, and pull my head past the saw. It works. Chuck loses his balance and his hair gets spun into the blade. With a sickening lurch, his scalp is pulled clean off. The piles of white sawdust go red in the sound of his screaming. The sound is enough to finally bring the teachers down. I go quietly. After all, Mr. Claremont does owe me a favor. I walk up the stairs, arms pinned behind my back, and I think of the last things M ever said to me. Brick, tug, frisco, pin. They were so much better than I love you. She gave me the thing I needed most. She gave me closure. M was a hell of a dame. From episode 34, Eric writes Sharknado, based on the film, written by Thunder Levin, and directed by Anthony C. Ferrante. This isn't fair, Finn thinks as the three twisters close in on either side of them. That was supposed to be the last one. He stands back to back with April, the woman who, until a few moments ago, was his estranged ex-wife. She scans the tornadoes, which have begun to circle around them like a pack of sharks closing in on a baby harp seal. The harsh winds twist and pull at their tattered, blood-stained clothes. 
They don't see the sharks yet, but they can hear them chomping and gnashing beyond the watery veil of the cyclones. April adjusts her overworked push-up and says, They're still coming. They're still coming. That old gypsy woman was wrong. Finn nods at this and pulls the cord, ripping new life into his trusty chainsaw. April does the same with her own. She looks over her left shoulder and says, I'm sorry, baby. I never should have taken the kids. He looks over his right and meets her gaze. I forgive you. I never should have taken the dogs. They shit so much. Are you ready for this? She nods. Just like Lumber Canyon back home. They rev the dual chainsaws, belting a gasoline-powered duet to the key of fuck yeah, just as three massive, great whites leap from the twisters and bare their thousands of razor-sharp teeth in horrifying unison. In less than a heartbeat, April and Finn have brought their motor axes into the paths of the smaller two, splitting them right down the middle from tip to tail like so many shark-shaped cords of wood. Yes... April thinks as the two halves of her shark fly to either side, colliding with the halves of Finn's shark and flopping to the ground with a bloody splash. (laughs) My father would be so proud. But she has forgotten about the third shark. With a crunch and a rip of tearing flesh, it collides with April's midsection like a runaway freight train, splitting her body in two before she can even blink. (laughs) April! Finn shouts as the shark rockets past, bits of and pieces of the woman he loved flying off in every direction. <laughs> it is in this moment that Finn realizes that he has wasted the best years of his life in a shitty dive bar instead of with his family. And now it's all over. No takesies backsies. <laughs> so be it, he thinks, as the twisters inch even closer, obscuring his vision and lifting him bodily into the air. The chainsaw slips from his grasp and clatters to the concrete. Dad! Matt shouts breathlessly, coming to a stop 50 yards from the three twisters that have just combined to form one megacyclone. He wipes the lipstick from his face and neck as he searches for signs of his father within the churning hive of spray, dust, and blood. The sound of Finn's screams filled the air of the parking lot of the Long John Silvers, accompanied by the manic growls and chomps of the dozen or so sharks that are being propelled about the tornado like the blades of a huge, deadly helicopter. Nova catches up to him and halts as well, eyes wide with terror. Mr. Shepard? She says softly. Suddenly, out from the body of the swirling twister, a bloody, translucent, softball-sized object flies at them, ricochets off the concrete at Matt's feet, and bounces off in the direction of the restaurant's dumpster from which they had just come. He follows it with his gaze for a moment before realizing with shock what it is. A bloody breast implant. (laughs) Mom? He whispers, horror etched into his face. And then Finn's screams suddenly cease, causing Matt to turn back around as the ragged and broken body of his father is ejected from the swirling death vortex and lands with a horrible wet thud at their feet. Nova screams. The cyclone bears down on them and whips at their hair. No, Matt says numbly. (laughs) That Sharknado must pay. (laughs) 
With a barbarian-like shout, Matt steps over his father's corpse and begins running towards the gigantic, unstoppable tornado with nothing but his fists spared. No, Matt! comes a shout from behind. He stops and turns, seeing Nova standing there, bloodied bikini top still miraculously in place after everything they'd been through. (laughs) You can't fight it! No one can! Nova! Matt shouts, tears welling in his blue eyes. That thing killed my parents. I have to do something. Not again, she says, stepping over Finn's body as well. Don't you dare do this to me, Matt. You saw what it did to your parents. It will do the same to you. We blew up the others, Matt argues. This one's different, she shouts, stepping right up to the man she suddenly and inexplicably loves. (laughs) This isn't a regular Sharknado, Matt. It can't be defeated the same way as the others. Matt sees that one of Nova's hands has strayed absentmindedly to the scar on her perfectly flat stomach. She notices his gaze and quickly moves her hand behind her back. Matt puts his own hand on her shoulder. What do you know? She meets his eyes. They're fiercely blue with specks of gray, like a breaking wave on that Southern California day so long ago. The deadly vortex spins madly out of control behind him, but he doesn't break the gaze. Tell me, he says. Matt, it's... it's too painful. Tell me, what makes this Sharknado so powerful? Tears are now streaming down Nova's perfect face, and she finally breaks eye contact and turns away from the boy. It was a long time ago. I don't want to talk about it. Matt wraps his arms lovingly around her, feeling a little boob while he does so. It's okay, babe, (laughs) he whispers, incomprehensibly audible over the roaring din of a tornado no more than 20 feet away. It's a shark bite, isn't it? No, it's... But the words catch in her throat. It's... well, yes, but not from a regular shark. This is confusing to Matt. He releases her and says, Then what was... She cuts him off and turns back around. Matt, I've seen a Sharknado before, years ago. But it wasn't like this. She shakes her head back and forth, as if to say, It wasn't like this. (laughs) She wipes her eyes. It was something bigger. More ancient. More malevolent. (laughs) What does that mean? Matt asks. Matt, all of these Sharknados are just regular tornadoes, but with sharks inside them, right? He counts on his fingers, then nods his head and says, Yeah, so... Well, what if I were to tell you that there was a different kind of Sharknado? One not spoken of since the Elder Days. (laughs) Nova, what are you talking about? I'm talking about that, she says, pointing a finger over Matt's shoulder. He spins and sees that the tornado has changed. Instead of a swirling gray torrent of water and dirt speckled with the occasional underwater super predator... There now spins an enormous, scarlet-red hyper-tornado, twirling into the shape of a gigantic shark. (laughs) What is that thing? Matt shouts, throwing a protective arm in front of Nova, touching a little more boob in the process. It is a megalodonado, a tornado not containing sharks, 
but made of sharks and also in the shape of a shark. As the beastly thing approaches, Matt can see its body is composed of a churning swirl of shark guts, blood, fins, and teeth, as if an entire pile of angry sharks was put through a gigantic blender. It opens its massive, swirling jaws and emits a roar unlike anything Matt's ever heard before, like a herd of elephants trying to stop an 18-wheeler carrying a shipment of air horns from smashing into a backyard swimming pool full of drunk teenagers. <laughs> You've seen this thing before? He shouts over the cacophony. Once, she says softly, it, it killed my father and chomped a piece out of me. <laughs> we, we should run. Matt suggests. No, Nova shouts. That thing is a Sharknado elemental, Matt. It creates Sharknados, and it won't stop creating them until they overrun the entire world. The huge blood beast lunges at them, snapping its Mack truck-sized jaws made of the smaller jaws of innumerable other sharks. They dive out of the way, but not fast enough. A flying shark tooth lashes out, and a line of blood appears across Matt's left cheek as something round and white flies into the air and bounces across the parking lot. Oh no, Nova thinks. Not his beautiful eye. Matt screams, My beautiful eye! That thing took my eye! He flails on the ground, clutching at his bleeding face. The Megalodonado swims through the air, cutting a tight loop and chomping threateningly at Nova and the prone form of Matt, now in a fetal position on the pavement. We're dead! We're all dead! He screams. The ancient beast of maritime bloodlust roars again, and no less than six cyclones appear in the parking lot, called into existence by its ageless and unknowable power. Several small sharks burst forth from the mini sharknados, but Nova just smiles and says, Not this time, baby. With that, she cocks her shotgun, the one her father gave her just before she lost him forever, and unloads. A few quick bursts of exploding shark later, and she's empty. The Megalodonado bears down on her and opens wide. She tries to shoot it in the face, but she's completely out of ammo. With a sinking feeling, she thinks, Well, this is it. It's finally found me after all these years. She lets the shotgun hang loosely at her side, and she closes her eyes with a finality that says, I'm ready to die. shouts Matt from the pavement. Catch! She jerks her head down to see Matt toss something up at her. She reacts instinctively and snatches the two small canisters out of the air and realizes with satisfaction that they are the shotgun shells that they got from the old gypsy woman earlier, the ones that had been filled with shark shot and blessed over the bones of her father. Yes, she thinks. This might just do it. But she isn't fast enough. With a horrifying chomp made from the force of a thousand shark parts slamming into one another, she is engulfed. Nova! Matt screams. Not again! 
The Megalodonado lifts its great red nose and does a victory lap around the parking lot, dismissing the surrounding mini-tornadoes as it does so. It roars in victory, and Matt cries tears of blood from one eye and tears of tears from the other, (laughs) bemoaning the loss of his mother, his father, and the girl he had just made out with in the dumpster behind the Long John Silvers. Just finish me off, he thinks. I don't have anyone else. The shark-shaped tornado, made of a bunch of other sharks, as if reading his mind, turns towards Matt and approaches slowly, like a cat toying with a mouse. It opens its great maw once more. It's just like that old gypsy woman said, is the last thought in his head. But then, boom! The left side of the Megalodonado's head explodes in a burst of teeth, fins, and other assorted shark parts. Its mouth closes, and it backs away from Matt in shock, before... BOOM! Another blast tears its head clean off, causing the entire Hyper Sharknado to erupt like a fountain made up entirely of seafood. (laughs) Matt is completely doused in shark blood and pelted with a hundred harmless little shark teeth. He wipes his face and uses his remaining eye to see, with amazement, Nova standing in the epicenter of the shark explosion. Every square inch of her is covered in viscera, and she's burying a few scratches here and there, but he's disappointed to see that her top has managed to stay on once again. (laughs) Nova? He shouts, finding nothing else to say. You killed it! She nods to Matt, then looks down at her trusty shotgun and says, Thanks, Dad. From episode 35, Andrew writes Twilight, based on the film written by Melissa Rosenberg, adapted from the novel written by Stephanie Meyer. September 15th. Tonight was my first real date with Edward. I asked him if we could call it a date, and he agreed. We went for a walk near Charlie's house. My house? The house I'm currently living slash writing this in. It drizzled a bit while we walked, which isn't surprising. It's rained at least a bit every day. I've lived here in Forks. I don't miss much about Phoenix, but I realize now I took sunlight for granted. I wanted so badly for the sun to shine earlier when Edward and I were out. He told me what happens when he's in the sunlight. He said it's quite the sight, and not because he bursts into flames. (laughs) I asked. I told him I didn't want to get burnt. He was still leaving space between us as we walk. I told him I didn't bite, and he laughed. I'm surprised he laughs when I make jokes like that. You'd think he'd have heard them literally a million times by now. He said he doesn't trust himself to get so close to the living. I said that if he's ever uncomfortable, to tell me instead of hiding it and acting like a chump. (laughs) A soft smile appeared on his lips then. He apologized and admitted that he's told me more about himself and his kind more than he's used to. He's not one to open up. I I get that. I haven't had anyone to talk to since moving here, and even before that, I may have had some friends, but I didn't feel comfortable discussing the hard stuff, like what was going on with Mom. I said I'd like to try to be more open, and asked if he'd be willing to try too. He agreed. September 20th. Tonight, Edward invited me over to his house after school. Wait, did I say house? Because I meant baller-ass estate. The place was bonkers. It was practically a castle. I'd never been in a house like it before. Back in Phoenix, 
A friend of mine lived in a pretty big place in the burbs, but it was all boring stucco walls and tile floors. Edward's place is covered in dark wood and heavy velvet curtains and massive fireplaces and no joke, tapestries. Real tapestries emblazoned with the Cullen family crest adorned the foyer and hallways. Like I said, castle. I got to meet Edward's dad, Dr. Cullen. Uh, I'll take that back. I got to meet Edward's dad, Dr. Cullen. I mark that with quotations because Dr. Cullen isn't actually Edward's birth father. I'm still getting used to how these things work. For not being biological family, Edward and Dr. Cullen have a very similar look. They're both tall and thin, but not in a lanky and awkward way. They carry themselves confidently. There's a lot of strength in them. The incident with me, Edward, in the van proved it, and then some. I find it ridiculously attractive. (laughs) I told Dr. Cullen that I found him interesting. I'd like to know more about what it's like to be a vampire and a doctor. I think it would make an excellent book. Vampire Doctor. (laughs) I'd read the hell out of that. Dr. Cullen said that the stories he had could fill volumes, and proposed that maybe I could write them someday. That was pretty cool of him to say, even though I sensed a slight bit of hesitation. After meeting Dr. Cullen, Edward and I sat down to watch a movie from the 50s called All That Heaven Allows. Edward said that it was one of his favorite films. It's about a middle-aged widow living in a small town who starts falling in love with her gardener, a younger man with awesome Elvis hair. (laughs) He loves her back, but she's afraid to go through with it because her adult children and the people at the country club find the relationship to be inappropriate. It was one of the most beautiful-looking movies I've ever seen. Every color was bright and rich, and the scenery was unnaturally immaculate. The young gardener guy with Elvis hair fixes up and lives in an old mill that, he, that seems pulled right out of a storybook. It was gorgeous. When the movie was over, Edward asked me what I thought. I told him how beautiful it looked, but that I hated the ending. He asked me why. It's a happy ending, after all. The two lovers get together. I told him it didn't feel right. The woman first succumbs to the pettiness of her kids and her so-called friends and breaks it off with the gardener. She only gets back with him after her stupid daughter and doctor tell her to. And then the gardener gets into an accident, and she feels guilty, and they get back together after he wakes up from a coma or something. I said if I were that guy, I'd have told her to get lost and start thinking for herself for a change. (sighs) Yeah, I ranted a little. Felt so awkward when I was done. Then I noticed how Edward was... how, How close Edward was to me. Closer than he'd ever been. He didn't look angry at me for ripping into one of his favorite movies. Uh, instead, he was smiling. I, I haven't ever seen him smile at me like that. Then he asked me, Bella Swan, where did you come from? I smiled back and told him, Phoenix, duh. <laughs> September 27th. Two nights ago, we did a blood test. Wait, that doesn't sound right. A blood test is something specific. What we did was a test involving blood, I guess. Whatever it was, it didn't go well. I didn't write about it until now because it kind of freaked me out. I want Edward to take me on a hike to Olympic National Park. He's lived in Forks for a long-ass time, so he knows his way around those trails. However, he wouldn't agree to go on the hike until he knew that he can control himself in the event that I should somehow draw blood. Fair enough, I thought. We performed our experiment here at Charlie's house. 
I w- he was out with Jacob's uncle, so I swiped a pair of handcuffs from his utility belt or whatever and cuffed Edward to the radiator in the living room. Edward was a little worried that he might still be able to break the cuff chain. I asked if he really thought he'd get that worked up at the sight of a teensy drop of blood. He agreed, saying it was likely to be as safe as we could get, given our present circumstances. However, he did tell me to stand across the room near the front door, in case I needed to make a quick exit. Yeah, thinking back on it now, it sounds crazy. However, at the time, I went with it. After all, I was, it was just a prick on the tip of my thumb. A tiny bead of bright red appeared after a little squeeze, and I held my thumb up so Edward could see it. The change in his expression happened right away. His eyes grew wide in fear at first. He recoiled a little. Then he relaxed, and his eyes narrowed and focused directly on my thumb. He began breathing heavily through his nose. His shoulders pulled back and his head tilted forward. From from beneath his strong brow, hungry eyes finally met mine. I was scared then, and it only got worse when I heard the voice in my head. A whisper telling me to come closer. It was Edward's. I could feel the words. They were soft and warm, as if his mouth was not across the room, but right above my neck. The hair there stood up in excitement. My whole body seemed to urge me forward. I took a single step closer, but just as my foot touched the floor, my own thoughts grew clear in my head, and I knew that this was wrong. I immediately turned around and walked out of the room into the kitchen, where I washed the blood from my thumb and threw water in my face. I didn't go back into the living room for an hour after this. All that time, (laughs) Edward remained cuffed to the radiator. He didn't shout or complain. When I finally re-entered, he apologized. I told him that I never wanted to hear his voice inside my head again. I told him it doesn't belong there. I remember how he hung his head as I said it. He told me he understood and apologized again. After a moment's hesitation, I unlocked him. Like I said, that was two nights ago. Tonight we tried again. I know, it was stupid, but this time Edward went out to feed beforehand. I forced him to tell me what he ate for some reason. I don't know why I felt so strongly about it. I guess it was the first time I'd asked him about that sort of thing. When he said that it was a rabbit... I wish I hadn't asked. Hmm. Poor (laughs) Bun-Bun. Anyway, we set everything else up the same, and crazy though it was, it worked. Edward admitted to feeling a little ill at the sight of the blood bead, but didn't notice any severe change. But I didn't notice any severe change in him. Not like before. With this successful test in the bag, we're hoping to try hiking this Friday after school. Honestly, after writing this all down and reliving this nutso experience... I feel kind of good. I feel much more ready to take on anything this ridiculous relationship throws at me. I think slash hope Edward is starting to feel the same. September 30th. It's 7am on Saturday, and I just got home. Thankfully, Charlie isn't back from his overnight patrol. Dodged an awkward argument there. Phew. Edward and I just spent the whole night together. Whoa. No future, Bella. That doesn't mean we slept together. Don't be such a perv. (laughs) But it was a pretty amazing night. To start, Edward wanted to postpone our first big hike. He wasn't feeling confident in his ability to control himself after the mishap earlier this week. 
I was disappointed, not gonna lie. I really thought we'd passed a milestone together, and I told him so. He wasn't so sure. We decided instead to walk through the woods behind Castle Cullen. (laughs) At first, it reminded me of our date two weeks ago. We weren't talking, and Edward gave me a lot of space. It's hard to describe how I felt about it. Mostly frustrated, I guess. I like this guy, and he seems to like me back. We've had some trouble up front, but who doesn't at first? I wanted to get angry at him, to tell him that this was stupid and a step backward and that we should be going to Olympic National Park. But I didn't. Instead, I began telling him how I liked to write, and that I wasn't kidding when I said that I wanted to write about his father. I saw his expression lighten as I spoke. He was happy to hear it, and started to tell me a few stories he'd gathered from Dr. Cullen to tell me a few stories he'd gathered from Dr. Cullen over the years. Then I told him more about Arizona and and the trouble with my mom. Then he told me about a friend he lost back in the 60s. Before we knew it, sunlight began to peek over the eastern mountains. The sky was clear and stars began to disappear in the orange glow. When the idea hit me, I immediately grabbed Edward's hand. I think I surprised him a bit more than I intended, but when I told him my idea, he laughed and lightly squeezed my hand. I think my heart may have skipped a beat at that moment. He then knelt down and asked me to hop on his back. (laughs) I'll admit, I I, I thought this was super weird. I hadn't gone on a piggyback ride since I was a little kid and my parents were together. It was just us, though, Edward and me. It's not like anyone else was there to watch and judge. I was just being stupidly self-conscious. So I shrugged that off and hopped on the back of my vampire boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) It turned out to be amazing. I kept forgetting how strong Edward is. His skinniness is so misleading. He gripped my thighs firmly, but delicately, and ran with grace over the uneven ground. I almost felt weightless as he navigated the winding forest paths, which led us further and further uphill. We'd never been this physically close before. I savored the sensation of the movement of his body against mine. Not gonna lie... It was really hot. (laughs) Finally, the trees parted, and we reached an overlook, high above Castle Cullen. Edward knelt back down to let me off. I would have been disappointed, but the view distracted me. We could see the entire valley below. It stretched on and on for miles, all the way to the dark blue ocean. I watched as the streetlights and forks started to turn off block by block. I turned to Edward just as the sun broke through the trees behind us. We were standing in just the right spot for a beam of warm light to cover us both. Then it happened, just what I'd wanted to see. His skin began to change. It became almost pearl-like, a milky surface reflecting back the sunlight in soft shades of pink and blue and yellow. The color shimmered and flowed down the curves of his cheeks, his chin, and his neck. I don't know how long I was staring. Definitely too long. (laughs) But Edward didn't seem to mind. When he finally spoke, he said he felt safe with me, and that he would try to keep me safe too. I felt the same, but the words didn't come. I don't think they needed to. Then, I kissed him. From episode 36, Marcus writes Mr. Robot based on the television series created by Sam Esmail. Hello again, my friends. Once more, I find myself sitting in my apartment after the sun has gone down, 
illuminated only by the glare of my monitor as I haven't stood in the past three hours to turn the lights on. I'm waiting for a connection so slow I think it should be classified as cruel and unusual punishment that anyone is forced to use it. I'm only hacking it, and I find it intolerable. So, what are we working on? It's a long story, but based on the slow crawl of this progress bar, I think I have the time to tell it. Today, we're going to travel back in time. Not literally, of course. If I could do that, I would try to stop Evil Corp from ever coming into existence, and we know how well that worked out for Sarah Connor. No. I want you to think back to when you were in elementary school. Between your games of tag at recess and despair over the lunch schedule, you had classes, and in those classes from time to time you would have exams. Tests to prove that you had learned the material covered in the subject, but also standardized evaluations to place you on a national scale. That's what you know now. The education department is host to an unending parade of standards that get trotted out to our public schools to examine exactly how well each state is doing relative to each other. Programs like Common Core and the provisions of the No Child Left Behind Act ensure that we're all getting a standardized education that keeps our populace comfortably behind Singapore and Hong Kong in the global rankings, as well as places like Sylvania and Estonia. Look it up if you don't believe me. Do you even know where Estonia is? Of course you don't. You went to school in the U.S. Moving on. (laughs) The point is this. Today you understand why these examinations are necessary. To calibrate funding. To make America great. Perhaps you've even explained these facts to your children when they've asked you the same question you asked when you were a child. Why do I have to take these tests? Turns out, the kids have the right idea. The data from those tests isn't secured in any reasonable way. Sure, IDs are often used to provide anonymity when the data is being provided for national studies, but the keys to reverting those sets to link them back to the original students are generally kept in plain text on unprotected servers, and paper copies can even be collected with a legitimate sounding request and a nice smile at most institutions. We don't run (laughs) national exams on data privacy literacy, but if you've been paying attention to me at all, you'd be able to guess that the U.S. would score pretty low on that front. Why do I have to take these tests? It all comes down to aptitude. Yes, it's important to know how good the country is at qualitative and quantitative analysis to see where we can improve, but the data is much greater interest to Evil Corp. They own your debt, and they can prey on individuals who have shown a historic lack of literacy in mathematics since childhood. These are the prime targets for high interest rates and abusive loan terms. Evil Corp knows you're going to fail to understand what you're getting into, and then they will own you. F Society wants to burn the whole system to the ground, reset the clock on everyone's debt, and liberate the nation from the tyranny of my employer. That also shows a poor understanding of mathematics. Without the banks, the world doesn't go into a state of harmony. It goes into a state of panic. Some debts are earned, and you can't bet that a bank running the numbers down to zero will make anyone forget that. What it would do is cost lives. But F Society being wrong doesn't make Evil Corp right. There has to be something we can do and targeting the targets to adjust their loan rates seems like a good start. Evil Corp has a process to carry out, and it employs good people with the bad. That process has to continue running until I can determine what to do with the company as a whole. I know Mr. Robot has some ideas. But there are tolerances within each input parameter for debt collection that won't cause a critical error. Now, I have two options for adjusting that parameter. First, I could dial down the loan rate on existing accounts. Or second, I could reduce the number of targets that are being generated by the educational data. You might think the first option is easier, because I have access to the security systems at Evil Corp through my day job, but you'd be wrong. 
If I get kicked out of the system, I lose my access, and I need that intact for the day of reckoning. No, the better option is cutting them off at the data source. That impact won't be felt for a longer term, and I can't help the people in debt today, but I can still make a difference. Remember when I told you I could get the records by hacking poorly defended public school servers or just going into an office with a smile? You should. It's important to remember how easy it is for your privacy to disappear in the wrong hands. Well, I never had that winning smile, but I do have a long focused lens and a hoodie to disguise my identity. Enter Principal Campbell. I took this picture a week ago. She's cute, isn't she? Attractive woman, young for the role, and taking in a healthy government salary. She's even more competent than most. The server at her school has multiple layers of password protection. The first was a general system access code from the IT department. I say department, but his name is Harold. Unfortunately for Harold, the sticky note containing the password was clearly visible through the window in the staff room. Fighting eagles with ones instead of eyes, all one word. I probably could have cracked it faster myself, but I was already scouting out Campbell, so it wasn't much hassle. Alas, the records I wanted weren't available on the first layer of password protection. I needed Campbell's password. But Elliot, you ask, what good is getting the records from a single elementary school going to do in making a national change? It won't. No good. Do you want me to praise you every time you get something right? I'll get to how it works in a moment. We've only just hit 90% on my progress bar. I mentioned that Campbell is competent, and that reaches beyond having a password for her own files. She's also doing a research project. You see, she wants to be the superintendent someday, and she thinks she can do that by finding a way to get more funding for her school, thus showing her financial acumen. A large chunk of that funding is determined based on these standardized test scores, so she positioned to be able to do an anonymous review of the scores of her students versus the answer keys used around the nation. She has all the data I need, and she's going to do my work for me. So, how did I hack her to get her password? Porn. Hmm. Yes, I know you wouldn't expect that for a woman, but it works disappointingly often. Offer a free selection of pornographic downloads via email for someone creating a username and password, and they'll usually sign up. Most of the time, that password is the same one they use for everything. I got complete access. Because I could spoof the IP at this point to the school's network, thanks to Harold, I was able to see everything about her from her Amazon order history to her college love letters without any of those services logging unusual access behavior. Would you look at that? My transfer's finished. I took the liberty of writing my algorithms earlier. I hope you don't mind. I always think that was I always thought that was cheating on the cooking shows, but it does save time. So here they are, already prepared. The first pass identifies the commonly wrong answers. In the multiple choice tests there are often trap answers that are designed to get the test takers to miss the question. What you may not know is that oftentimes, these have a greater selection rate than the correct answer. Once I know what these questions are, the second script will change the answers on the key to make the false answers read as correct. Yes, the kids who actually got the answers right will now get them wrong, but they'll live. The goal here is to drive up the average and protect the easily manipulated. Finally, my programs will verify this distribution will work on a national scale and match the other answer keys. All I have to do now is upload the adjusted keys to the school server. Principal Campbell will see that her students were underscored when she manually compares the answers. She'll report the error, sending my answer key to the Education Department server for them to verify her findings. When it's launched on a federal server, my Trojan will replace the answer keys with my corrected versions across the whole country. A nationwide rescoring will raise our educational standard, ensuring that schools everywhere get more funding. Miss Campbell is well on her way to a promotion, and Evil Corp doesn't have these test scores to find targets for their abusive loan terms. Not bad for a night's work. Assuming the connection isn't lost overnight during my upload, 
and might even get a few hours of sleep before reporting to Allsafe. Holy shit, are you finally done? The woman who almost made me fall out of my chair there, with her sudden declaration and flick of the light switch, is Darlene. How long has she been sitting in there watching me, I wonder? How long have you been sitting there watching me? I came, I came when the sun went down a few hours ago. Mr. Robot wanted me to make sure you didn't mess this up. I've got to move. I've tried changing my security, but she keeps finding her way in. Why is Mr. Robot himself so interested in changing a couple test scores? Elliot, get some sleep. You're not clear in the head. Do you really think that's what you've been doing? I don't know what you're talking about. The dead I've just corrected. Good night, Elliot. I'll report to the boss that it's done. The Trojan is on its way. And if you do end up moving, leave the furniture. I want better comfort the next time I break in. <laughs> I was just watching her, and I didn't hear her close the door. Did you? Maybe I do need some sleep. I did write that Trojan, right? You saw me do that. Well, no, I, I guess you didn't. I, I was prepared earlier, but Principal Campbell, I, I showed you her picture. See, remember, she's cute, and... Do you notice the men in black suits in the background of the photograph? Were they there before? I've got to go, my friends. The progress bar is ticking, and I'm not sure if its agonizing pace will be enough this time. So much for a few hours of sleep. You've reached the finish line of Just the Fix Volume 3! Whoa! You must have built up some serious ear muscles with all that listening you did. Flex them ears, show them off. Wow, that's impressive. Ah, I hope you found a time well spent, folks. If you did, find the show on iTunes and give us a rating and review. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Sham Fiction. And finally, there's good old shamfiction.com, where you can find all the episodes, read the text versions of each fic, and contact us. You can drop us a line via any of these channels. We'd, we'd love to hear from you. All right. I'll be back in your head and your heart, along with Eric and Marcus, with our latest episode this Sunday. Until then, this has been Andrew Neal for Sham Fiction. <laughs>